Welcome to another edition of the MN Fool Podcast. <laughs> so, so uh, MN Fool Bootcamp, Cue It Up Network podcast with Josh Burble. Hey, hey, fellas and gals. And Demetrius Gelatis. So, yeah, some, somehow my, uh, the video editor that I got set up with, for some reason, changes the first seven seconds into helium voice. And I haven't had time or energy to try to fight that fight. <laughs> so, so I thought I'd try to start in a baritone and then work my way up. And yeah. I, don't, I don't think I could pull it off. We might have game this system there. Oh, <laughs> uh, shoot, Josh. Uh, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. Everything's great. Everything's great. It's late. Yeah. Yeah, we're here at Slate Billiard Club, bringing you the new pod. So, uh, what do we got? We've got some good stuff on the docket today, uh, but we'll get we'll get started. Uh, I wanted to start with some icebreakers. So, there's some some listener questions, and I'm like, you know, uh, let's go. So, let's see. The, do we? Do you need to introduce yourself or anything? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Josh. No, I appreciate. Well, I mean, it. Yeah, I feel like, like everyone's kind of we're all just pals. And we're like, what's going on? Don't you know? Like, don't yeah. you know who you're dealing with here? I mean, we have to assume that maybe someone's new. Let's okay. There might be. There might be somebody who hasn't been fasted by greatness yet. No, it's not. So I'm Demetrius Gelatis uh, in Minneapolis. I run MN Pool Boot Camp. When I say I run it, it's me. I run me, and uh, I always hated it when people were like, they run a single owner operated business and they have on their business card founder or yeah, CEO. Yeah, exactly. Like anybody that has founder or CEO. Okay. Anyway, I'm the I'm the founder and CEO of MN Pool Bootcamp, which is a training uh program for pool players. It's a three day, three day one-on-one intensive pool experience for, for strong players, you know, intermediate and advanced players looking to break through plateaus and and retool their pool game and, and get on a road that where they leave with they're already playing better and they have a path that they can continue on on their own to continue reaching new heights. So if you're interested in pool training, go to mnpoolbootcamp.com. MN stands for Minnesota, mnpoolbootcamp.com. Thank you, Josh. That's me. And then Josh is my longtime uh, road partner, best friend and pool player. And now, uh, co-founder and co-CEO of Slate. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, plays a hell of a game, and uh, and he's doing instruction here in the Minneapolis St. Paul area. Yep. So so for people that are looking for three days all in intensive training and want to fly in and just go crazy with pool, I'm your guy. Anybody that's listening to this in the Wisconsin, North South Dakota, Iowa, or Minneapolis area that's like, you know what, that Demetrius seems a little crazy. I'm not sure that that's for me. Josh is somewhere between normal and insanity. Like it's Josh, and he's yeah. a happy medium for a lot of y'all. Yeah, yeah, that's that's perfect. Well stated. Good. How can they reach you? Do you want to just drop your phone number? Oh, sure. Yeah, seven six three two seven three three seven three two. Yeah, seems right. That seems right. Yeah. So, and that's good. So, and also anybody that's coming through the Minneapolis area, um, you can reach out to either of us. Um, if you want to stop by and see our billiard club, uh, it'll be a fun trip. So I've, I've got a few people that have contacted me, but if I'm in the middle of a boot camp, I just refer them to you. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, we actually had a guy from Italy and a oh, couple yeah, times, right? Enrico, that's right. Enrico, yeah. I can't roll my R. He, he's he does it cool because it's his name. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, very cool. awesome. All right. Uh, so now that everyone knows who they are dealing with. Let this let us uh, take on this listener question. So the first question was: This guy he plays leagues and he's got a league team, and during his warm up, <laughs> during his warm up, uh, sometimes he his team his teammates are struggling a little bit when he's playing with his teammates, 
and he's just kind of told Spadome or they're just kind of missing balls and feeling helpless. And sometimes he feels bad and he like plays down a little bit, like deliberately gives him a few extra chances, misses a few balls, tries to get, get him some innings and, you know, give him some at-bats to get going and build their confidence. And he, and he messaged me and he's like, is that wrong? Like, is that wrong for me? And he says, I think they know I'm doing it too. So he's like, is that, is that wrong? Should I always play everybody as hard as I can? Or is there a time to kind of like, you know, kind of tee up your partner or your, your opponent, you know, or your, who you're playing with a little bit? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's 100% wrong. That's what I think. Yeah. I, I think he should be just beast mode, destroying people. And, and, uh, and trying to be an inspiration to them to practice and want to get better. But yeah, he should be playing at his absolute peak highest level that he can possibly muster when he's playing people, especially his league guys to, uh, to inspire and to uh, push them, push them to an uncomfortable spot. And so if that means they get smoked, then they get smoked and they have to practice and get better. And if he wants to do something to encourage them, then everyone stop competing, do some easy layouts help them be a leader on that team and help them doing some easy layouts and, and just hitting shots. And you're not there competing to warm up. You're all just working together to get your arm moving and, and get in stroke and feel good. That that's the way I would approach it. If I was not wanting to run him, run them over. So I would, uh, I would switch up the way they're approaching the game. Otherwise I would uh, absolutely foot on the throat, beat everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what you kind of said, it's actually, I'm I'm not surprised by the answer. I was a little bit surprised because there was part of me that was like, well, each to their own. Like, not everybody's playing for the same reasons. You know, some people are just playing socially to have fun. They don't take pool all that seriously. And if, and if so like, if you're, if you're a, a once a week player that doesn't really get, it's super passionate about pool. Like you're not training and developing yourself. You don't have aspirations of improvement and getting, you know, better and moving up the ranks. If you're just like, Hey, once a week, I like to go out with my buddies. I, I didn't, you know, I saw a flyer in the bathroom, the urinal one time and I decided to join an APA league and I'm just here to hang out with a couple of friends and huh, we're playing pool and having a few beers. Like, I don't know. I mean, do what you want to do. But as far as what's like, if, if you're listening to this podcast, I would assume that you like pool and want to get better. Yeah, go ahead. Can I talk on that? I still think if they're that person that you described, if you play a high level game against them, that will inspire them to get more interested and more excited about pool and to put more into pool and have a better time with pool. Um, that's it. I just, I, I think that a person that just wants to have beers and hit balls and have fun, totally fine if they want to do that, but it would seem sort of criminal to not, not show them what it could look like or how, how it could be. If you, if you put some work in, like when I, when I play with my kids, they're, they're 11 and 13 and they, they shoot straight up in the air in 14. And so I run them over. Like I just, I just run them over, run them over, run them over. And I figure they're either going to look at that and say, Hey, I want to learn how to do that. Or they're going to be like, this is a stupid game and I can't do that. And I don't want, I'm not really interested in it. And so I'm doing them a favor either way, either they're going to be inspired and they're going to want to play, or they're going to realize that looks like not that interesting to me. And it's just, you know, whatever. So that, that's, you know, that's. No, I get it. Yeah. So, so I, I, my point was, I, what it comes down to is what I was trying to say was, I think that there's a lot of ways that people can enjoy the game. And, and, and so I always get a little hesitant to say, this is how other people ought to enjoy the game because I enjoy doing my best striving and trying to get better and, and challenging myself with personal growth and taking on more and more adversity. Uh, I find that to be a meaningful and rewarding path. If, if somebody else didn't, then, so like I would say if this guy that was, you know, writing in, if he didn't really care, 
about his full gamers development. And he was just like, I don't know. I'm just here to have fun with my buddies. And I don't really care. Like, I'm not here to tell him he has to play pool a certain way. But to your point, what you did nicely is there's a big line that needs to get drawn between competition and practice. This is, I think, important. And I run into this with my students sometimes. So like my students will fly in and then we'll be hanging out. We'll be training all day. And we'll be, you know, as we're training, we go through stuff where they're, you know, sometimes they're able to ask me. And even during the day, they'll ask me questions and we'll be talking about how to hit shots and setting them up and talking about, you know, the, the keys of doing certain things. And that's like, there's like teaching where you're talking about these ideas. But then there's a part where you're like, at the end of the day, maybe they want to play me a race to five. And all of a sudden, like after their first shot, they want to talk to me about, well, here's what I was thinking about. I'm like, whoa, 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 what are we doing? Like now we're competing. Mm -hmm. And once we're competing, mouths shut. All we care about is just trying our best. Like this is no longer time to like talk theory. Like now we're trying to put it into practice. And the same thing happens, of course, during my sessions. We'll be talking about stuff for a few minutes, but try to understand the ideas and kind of fine tune the techniques. And then suppose I'm talking to them about something and we work on, we work on a certain drill and we're working on a certain run. All of a sudden, I'm like, okay, now we've worked on it. Now you understand what you're supposed to be doing. Now for the next half hour, I want you doing it. Now it's like, now we can shut up and now is there's time to, now they're just playing. Now they're trying to do it. And so I think the purpose is that there's a gap, there's a line that needs to be drawn between practice and competing. So my opinion, kind of similar to Josh, when you're playing your teammates, you should be playing them like it's a match. And if that's not a good experience, if, if after doing this, you're like, hey, these guys, I'm levels above them. They get up there, shoot once, I run through racks. They shoot once, I run through racks. They're averaging half a ball a rack, and I don't think this is good for them. But Josh's point, some of it is good for them because you can, like, like Josh said, you can inspire them with what's possible. You can make them shine a light on where they're weak, make, motivate them to do better. But if it's, if it's too mismatched for too long and they're not enjoying it or you, you think it stops being beneficial – and you're like, no, I want something to where they can get some more table time, actually get some practice, build up some confidence. Then what Josh said is absolutely right. But what you have to do is you can either you have to like seriously handicap the competition to where it's like you're going to have to, you know, maybe you play where you have to bake the eight or you have to, you know, or you have to shoot, you know, you know, last you have to play last pocket or you can find ways to handicap it to where you can play your hardest, but they still get innings like that's one solution. The other, uh, the other solution I like, and I use this with my daughter when I taught her how to play, is you could play scotch doubles where you're playing against the, you know, you're playing solids, but you have to alternate shots. And that way you can both play as hard as you can, but yet you're both getting even table time. So I think competing scotch doubles or playing scotch doubles teams with four people, you know, that's okay. Um, so those are ways that you can still be in competition mode, but even out the opportunities a little bit if you really felt it's one side. But to Josh's point, the other thing you could do is forget about the competition idea and say, instead of competing games against each other, we can always just practice and we can set up a certain layout and take turns running it. I'll show you how I run it. Now you go up and try to do the same thing. And, and now you can be supportive and encouraging and take turns at the table because now you're no longer competing. The idea is when you're competing, you're always playing your hardest to win. But when, when you're training and practicing, then you can, then you can kind of share the table and talk and do some other stuff there. So I don't know. For me, I think that when I was like, I could just speak to what worked with my daughter when we were kind of up and coming is we'd always do a little bit of practice and take a turns and kind of working on stuff. And then when we competed, we always competed scotch doubles just because there was, there was such a big skill gap. That was the only way it would make sense for her to not just want to quit the game. Mm -hmm. But that's what worked for me. So yeah, I think we're kind of on the same page. Bottom line is once you're wearing your competitor role, 
you got to compete hard and show them what's possible and push yourself and not just inspire them with your level of play, but inspire them with how hard you push yourself. Yeah. Yep. And I just think, I guess with my kids, I never really competed with them. We were just hitting racks or hitting shots or whatever, but uh, I don't know. I mean, so I didn't, I'm trying to think. And, and also when I'm practicing with people, like if I'm competing and it's not going well, for the other player, I will switch to Scotch doubles. Like that's something that I've done quite a bit. Um, so I like that idea down and I've used it in practice and it's cool. Yeah. There's a certain threshold. Like if you're playing, I mean, Josh, if you're practicing with somebody who's like, you know, I mean, you're over 700 Fargo. If you're practicing with somebody that's like 550 to 650 Fargo, you can play your hardest and, and, and play your hardest. And then, they have to learn to deal with that and develop their game and respond to that and then fight for their opportunities. And, and, and you could put some heat on them and inspire them and push them. But if you're competing with somebody that's 350, then at some point the skill gap gets so big that where you're kind of playing solitaire. And then it's like, then that's where, that's where looking at alternatives might matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think it depends on the person a little bit too, because I, I've played with, um, Guys, okay, so like Chris is out there hitting balls. So Chris and I have played, and most of the time we're training and I'm teaching and we're we're kind of working on this game, and he's like a 450. And then, but we've also had sessions where we've gone up and played games, and you know, I've just kind of rained down on him, and he likes that. Like he wants to watch me shoot and wants to see, you know, that type of pool getting played. So I think that I I, you know, we're I'm probably but that, but after a while. That only is good for like a half hour, 45 right. minutes. That's enough. Yep. Yeah, now we're at the man. Yep. So, so, so I think, like, I think I'm just trying to see, like, not that we need to get on the same page, but I just want to just talk it through. Like, I, I, I think, um, in, there's certain situations where I think there's value in like raining on people because they'll, they'll find it inspiring. They'll find it interesting. They'll, they'll be motivated, they'll whatever, but not for hours and hours, maybe for a half hour, 45 minutes, whatever. Like, I jumped in with these guys that were probably 400 and, and then a complete beginner. I was a guest yesterday and we just played a few racks and it's like, they were just really excited to play. And it, it wasn't about who got how many turns of things. They just wanted to see pool getting played, you know? No, I, I agree. I think yeah. that, I think that the, uh, the idea is there's, there's room, there's a little, there's room for everything. So if all you ever did was play to where you're never getting a shot because your opponent's 10 times better than you, then that's a little, that might not be optimal. But it's good. I think everybody enjoys playing and seeing what's possible being pushed. And I think the one danger that you're kind of hinting at that you might not have said directly is one danger is when you're the stronger player is to have any excuse to not give your best. Like, oh, it's better for them if I don't. Or it's probably good if I don't play my best because then they'll get more turns. And all these different stories we tell ourselves to let ourselves out the book. And it's like it's a lot harder to just sit there and say, no, I have to hold myself to the highest standard at all times. Um and and so don't give yourself an excuse. Play your hardest. And show them and show them the best thing you can model for them is no excuse. Try your hardest pool. That's the best thing you can model. That's it. And that's really a lot of where this came from right out of the gate. It's strong with like hundred percent whatever. Yeah. When I came like that, like I don't want any I don't I mean, I'm trying to mind read this this person that wrote in or anyone that has this issue or has thought about this, but it's like I just, I don't want any excuses, man. Like people give enough excuses. I give myself enough excuses for not trying hard enough or playing, not or, play, or putting my total focus in. And, and uh, yeah, it's, I just think you gotta, 
There's always a reason. There's always, there's always yeah. a reason yeah. not to have to play your mind. Yeah, yeah. And I just think we want to try to build the habits of playing our hardest. That's I 100% agree. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, let's do one more listener question. What else do we got? We've got, oh, this was a good one. Um, I like this question. Somebody said, you know, I play, and it seems like when I play, I start slow. And then as I play, I get playing better and better to where by the end of the night, I'm like in gear, hitting my top range. And then the next day I come to the pool table again and I'm just like back where I started again, where it seems like I'm always starting slow and it always takes me time to kind of, to kind of get up to, you know, build that momentum, build into that rhythm. And, and it's like, how come I'm always such a slow starter? So I don't know. I don't know if I relate to that a whole bunch, but, but there might be reason. If, so what do you think? Do you think you, you need a lot of time to warm up? Do you think your game takes time to develop into, into gear? If so, why? Or what advice do you have? Um, well, okay. So there's a couple of different questions there. I think that, that my first initial thought was, yeah, that's totally normal. Like, that's just cool. That's just golf. That's just any sport. Like that's anything. It just takes time to warm up a little bit. And, and, uh, yeah, like that to me, that's just normal. So that was my first initial reaction. Totally normal. Nothing to see here. Like, this is just the way it goes. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, to the to the to the but you're ripping in the background. Um, yeah, I I think it's normal now. Uh, I do think that. I, I, yeah, I mean, I just think that that's that's standard. Like, it just takes you a little bit of time to warm up. Some people are slow starters. Like, I know for me, like I'm a nervous player, so it takes me quite a while to warm up and to feel comfortable and. You know, and I don't know if I ever feel quote unquote in dead stroke or whatever. It's like I'm always just sort of grindy and nervous and whatever. Flinchy bunty. <laughs> vulture. Vulture. We're vultures, not eagles. Here. Exactly. This is the vulture podcast. This is the vulture podcast. So so it's like for me, I don't but 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 in reality, it does take time to for to get sort of going. Like I'm never like if okay, if I'm gonna do a gambling match or anything where I it's competition and I am concerned about the outcome of the games, I need to go warm up. It's just if I'm gonna play somebody that's uh close in speed and I feel like or or whatever, and I feel like I'm in jeopardy of having, you know, having to start fast, quote unquote, or not start slow because I don't want to get in a big hole, then I need to go warm up. And it doesn't need to be for hours. It's I'm talking like 10, 15 minutes. So like when we were at Derby, I would always jump down and just hit five to 10 minutes worth of shots. And if I hit them into the rail, if I wasn't hitting them good, I didn't panic. I didn't worry. It's it, same thing with golf. Like I, I played a lot of golf and basically with golf, I just need to get my hands around the club and I need to hit some shots into the dirt and have that vibration. And so if I hit you know, I don't even need to hit buckets of balls. If I just hit a half dozen to a dozen balls, then I can go out and I can strike the ball pretty well and feel decent and be limber. And I think it's the same for pool. It's like, I'm just like, you know, half a bucket of balls for pool, whatever that is a rack or, or two. And I'm, and I'm, I'm got enough of that vibration, that feel and that thing in my hands where I'm, I'm decent. And then as far as like getting into stroke or falling into the, the concentration component or the, the zone, whatever you want to call it, like that just takes time and that's doesn't have to happen every day or every time or just because you warmed up doesn't mean that's going to follow. It's just trying to, you know, give yourself the best chance to, 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 to deliver your best. Yeah. So I think, it, I think that there's, 
I was thinking about this. I've had time to think about it. I, I have kind of two things I want to talk about this, but I want to speak to the first thing is kind of what Josh is talking about, which is, so what, what actually is happening during that warm-up? And here's what I think it is. It, it has to do with what the level of focus you have. Like, how focused is your mind and what is it focused on? So when you're playing good pool, it's almost like your focus has gone from like a lantern to a flashlight to a laser beam where little by little by little, as you play pool, thoughts that run through your head that are non related to your task at hand, get let go. And you, and those thoughts get let go more easily. They start becoming less, they don't, they don't entertain your attention. Uh, so by the time you're, you're really zoned in, you're just almost like your brain is somewhat quiet, focused on the task at hand. Really, the, the, the part of the task that you're focused on, which is this shot, the contact point, where you need your cue ball, that kind of stuff, that has seemed like you've zoomed way into where that's encompassing your entire attention, your entire focus. And everything outside of that has kind of quieted and faded into the back. But then what happens is you leave. And then you go through a busy day at work and you're getting phone calls from your significant other or your kids and you're dealing with all these hundred different things and bills and I got to do this and that. Now your focus is zoomed out to where you're thinking about life and all the thousands of little details that it's throwing at you. Uh, you're like a short order cook trying to keep up around this place. And so then you go to the pool table and your brain is zoomed way out thinking about a million things. And in the middle of it is like, oh yeah, pool. Like, let's just do pool. But if you don't get it to where you let go of all that other stuff and bring your focus back to that laser point, like to me, that's, I think, what warm-up is really about. It's just kind of, and, and what's nice is when you get to the table, you miss a few balls and some things don't work. And it's almost like a little feedback where it's like, ooh, not at the right level of focus yet. You're going to need to bring a little bit more. And then each miss and each hit and each time it's a little bit off, it's like you start asking for a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more focus until until hopefully you at least quiet down to the point where it's it's giving your best it's getting your best effort even if it's not getting your best performance yeah what you just described is a total like perfect description of what's happening like you you're you're sort of fuzzy you're sort of distracted life all that stuff and then you can't strangle focus either it takes time so like the reason like the the he's writing in and saying it takes time for him it's because that's what's happening i feel like probably is that he's changing his focus level from family and life and work and all those distracting things. And he's starting to like click out of those windows on his, on his computer and his brain. And he's starting to just trying to get that, that one window open of pool. And it might take 20 minutes. It might take two hours. I mean, it just, it kind of depends on how quick you can, you can close out those windows and get, and get the one that, that you're focused that you're on. And sometimes you can't close them out. Sometimes they pop up randomly, like like spam folds, spam. That and it's like that, all that stuff. It's like yeah, there's tricks, trips and tricks and tactics and things that you can do to try to deal with all that. And you take Demi's uh, um, mindset class. Oh yeah, yeah. Hey, I got a. I'm actually pretty excited. So this mental game coaching, it's on my website, mnpoolbootcamp.com. Uh, really, really, really cool mental coaching stuff going on. I just, I've got my next class ready to go for uh, August, September. We're doing three two-hour sessions. So it's it's a group of three, three people by Zoom. And so if you're interested in working mental game, basically it would be like every other week for two hours for three sessions. So it's over five weeks, one week on, one week off, one week on, one week off, one week on, two, two hours a night. And, and we do it in a group of three to keep the pricing down and we go through and it's interactive. So it's not just like a lecture series. Like we're going to bring, like, what are the things you want to bring to the table? And then how do we 
I have a general approach. I, I teach my mental game kind of approach, if you will. But then I, but then I tie it into what everybody brings to the table, so they can see we can rehearse and prepare for specific situations. Anyway, I've got the next one lined up for August, September, and then I've got two lined up for October, November. Um, but I need people that are I can do Monday night from nine to eleven p.m. Central Standard Time. So, um, I, of course, if those hours don't work and you want to work with me, get in and we can find another session. But but for the uh, October session, I need one more. So thank you, Josh. Cool, cool. Yeah. So, OK, this, yeah. Uh, the other thing that that really was on my mind, Josh, is the second part of this question, I think, nags me. Which is, I think that the biggest trick that our brain plays on us is it's like um how we remember things and how we block things out. So my, okay, funny little story my dad told me once, my, you know, when it comes to memory, I always think of this story. He was a rock climber and I'm going to give you the really short version. He did a rock climb where he was in a, a real dire situation, very dire situation. He, they went off the route. So they, they, they stumbled off the, the plotted climb. So they had no idea how tough it was or if it was even possible. And, and there was a shrub who was right ahead of him. Like he remembered the shrub. And then there was like this ledge he couldn't reach and he, he couldn't back climb. And he was in a spot where basically he was 20 minutes on the rock, which could feel like a lifetime mm -hmm. thinking about if he's going to get out of the situation. And, and, uh, and his arms are hypertensioning where they're starting to shake with, you know, hypertension and all that. And anyway, funny, funny thing. I mean, he thought he was going to die right there and he spent, how, however long hanging out of that rock preparing to be this maker and, and, and then the funny part is he ended up getting out of that situation of course but the funniest part is that when he thought back to that climb that was completely deleted out of his memory it was so traumatic and so horrible he totally forgot about that so years later every time he thought about that climb that day he remembered all the other parts of the climb like the drive the climb up the walk to the cliff he remembered the, how the 80 percent of that climb was totally fun mm -hmm. and he totally blocked it out so when he had a friend in from out of town like hey we should go climb somewhere he's like oh i know a great climb and he led him to that same climb and, the, and he's like everything was exactly how he remembered it the drive the walk the start of the climb he's like yeah just like i remembered everything's great and he was tootling on up and all of a sudden he got to this place where he started getting into a desperate situation and he realized that things are not going so well. This is starting to get serious. And all of a sudden he looked up and he saw that shrub and he looked over and he saw that ledge and he stopped and he says, Oh hell, this. And it all came back to him. It all came back to him. And it's funny, like he totally blocked it all up. And as soon as he saw how things were and he saw that shrub, mm -hmm. it's like it hit like a punch in the face. He's like, Oh shit, why am I here again? Yeah. So, okay, what does this have to do with pool? I think that we do this with pool. I think that pool is hard. It's so hard. It's so difficult that what happens is we get playing and we're 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 getting the, we're missing balls and we're hanging balls and we're missing shots we thought we'd make and every feel helpless and nothing's working and it's so difficult that it's just it's it's overwhelmingly difficult. And then and then what happens is we, we we rise to this level where we're so hungry and so focused and so determined. And sometimes, and sometimes we get playing so hard that we start playing, we start being able to do it. And the, the biggest trick that our mind plays on us is at the time, 
if you were to look at like how hard you're working and how confident quote unquote you feel, it's like at that moment, you're like, every shot looks impossible. I'm digging as deep as I can to just give it a chance and fighting and hoping that I could just somehow make this ball go in and somehow get on that ball. And you're fighting for your life one ball at a time. And when you're in that mindset, racks can melt away sometimes. And you can look back and be like, hey, I just want a set seven to one. I played almost a perfect set. I didn't really, you know, I, I did everything. I played awesome. And then the next day you can look back at that memory. And what you remember was floating around the table and everything went in, like waving a wand over the table and everything just went in because you were just, you know, it's like, ha, ha, ha. I just ran the table over that. I, I, that, I was, I played awesome. That game was easy because I'm so great. I just crushed it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like at the time you're fighting ball for ball, but then looking back at it, you're like, yeah, I just, you know, I just hit him with a seven pack. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, and I think that's an, a huge illusion. And what happens then is, is that our, we, our brain tricks us because we just remember looking back, it was easy. At the time, it felt impossible. But then looking back, it was like, that game was easy. So then when you pick up your cue, if you're like, well, I'm just going to do what I did yesterday again, where I run the table over. It's like you're remembering. It's almost like there's the squeeze and then there's the orange juice. And at, in the moment, it was like the biggest squeeze of your life. But then looking back, you're like, yeah, that was a tasty cup of orange juice. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, well, let me just go grab my orange juice for the day. And you show up thinking you're just going to like run the table over again like you did yesterday. And you forgot how hard it really was to do what you did. And so I think that when people get playing good and then they come in the next day and they're playing bad again, I think it's because they're like, okay, I got it to the part where it was easy and I was just pouring orange juice. Now I'm just going to go get more of that orange juice. And I just think that I think that they forgot how tough they I, th I think they forgot how hard they had to work to make it that way. What are your thoughts on that all? No, I agree hundred percent. That's it, man. I've just, I've been in this, I've, we've been doing it so long. It's like, to me, that just seems normal. Like well, if we I, know better. I mean, we, yeah, every time. Yeah. yeah. So when I'm hearing this, I'm just like, yeah, I mean, it's just super normal to just, every day is a new day. I mean, every match is a new match. Like when we're playing matches and tournaments, you could play a great match and you hear people say that, well, I played a great match and then I played bad. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's the way it works. I mean, it's just sometimes that's the way it goes and it's it everything is a reset right like you play that's what i like about that's what i like about derby and playing it's like there's all these matches and there's all these resets and you're just constantly focused to reset 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 and it's uh you know you can catch some matches in a row and stuff but but then it's like but then you're playing at like three in the morning and you're tired and it, you know what i'm saying and it's like well i think what, such i think the core thing. of what you're saying is this and this is why this ties into the last question about like not wanting uh, our last answer about not giving any reason ever to not play your hardest. Pool is always the heart. Like no matter how good you get, no matter how good you think you are, it's always going to be the hardest thing in the world. That's it. It's always going to be the hardest thing. In the world. And, and so if you get better, well, then your performance might be better, but the effort it takes won't reduce. The effort it takes is always going to be everything you've got all the time. And as soon as you don't do that, the game is going to kick you to the curb and remind you that the game is harder than you think. And so you don't actually... So I, I've had people that wanted to get better because they wanted to kind of have it on cruise control where they could just win and have it come easier. In fact, I think most people that reach out to me have this desire to where I just want to get to the point where the game's not so hard. I want to get to the point where I'm good enough that I can just kind of show up, put my cue together and be skilled enough that the, you know, I can just kind of smooth through tables. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, 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 no. You can, you, you put in work so that when you show up and give a hundred percent, 
your results gradually get better and your performances get better. But but there's no road to where it's not 100%, 100%, 100% every shot. And I still, so when people ask me questions like this, I feel like the brain plays a trick on you where when you remember back to yesterday, you forgot that you were giving 100%. And when you show up again today, you're like, well, maybe now's the part where I'm finally playing good enough. I don't have to dig so deep. I can just kind of play good. When do I just get to play good? And the answer is you'll never be good enough to just show up and have it kind of be cruise control. It's always a hundred percent game. And when you're talking about every match is a new match, every you know shot is a new challenge, every, every set is a new challenge. It's like everybody's kind of secretly, there's a part of us, the weak part of us that's secretly yearning for the part where it gets easier. And that's not cool. And what's, what's hard about pool is that it's always the hardest thing you could ever do at all times. And if you ever do anything less than that, your performance will immediately suffer. And so like that guy that's like, when do I get the, what if I'm just want to let off of my teammates a little bit? The reason why Josh was so knee jerk against that is because that ain't pool, man. Pool is always, always, always the hardest thing in the world on every shot. And if, and if, if you're doing it different than that, you're sacrificing your performance. And if you think it's going to be different than that, if you think, that, hey, I was playing good yesterday. So now's the part where I think I can finally show up and just, you know, come in half, half focused after a day of work and just kind of put my cue together and have a cup easy. If there's any part of you that thinks that's what's going to happen, the reason it takes you a while to warm up is because you have to see that fail for a while before you ever buy it. But that's yeah, not going to work. That's a good point. And yeah, I guess, yep, that's a good point, Demi. And I just think, yeah, of course, you can go and, and go and have, you know, 80% effort or 70% effort, but you're going to get probably 50% of your, of your, of your range, like the lower 50%. So it's like with golf, right? I, I worked really hard on my game to get to a certain level with golf. And then I just wanted to stop having to work so hard and just be, go slap the ball around the score. Good. they have a good score. And it's like, okay, well that doesn't really work that way. I mean, I could, I, I would, it would put a bunch of extra strokes on my game to just go out and not be not be trying my absolute one hundred percent hardest. And as long as people are okay with that, I'm fine with that. Like, but but don't be like, well, I mean, just be realistic and own it, and be like, well, I'm not putting in the effort, so I'm not getting the top of my range or even any even the middle of my range hardly. And and I'm okay with that today because I don't feel like working on it. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Totally. If you want to do that, that's totally fine. But yeah, and I and I have a I have a saying. This, I, I say, uh, bad players treat the game like it's easy and make it hard. Good players treat the game like it's hard and keep it easy. So I I, I think that like people that show up and they're just like. I just want it to be easy. I want to be good enough that the game's easy. It's like that's never, ever, ever going to happen. And I think people strive for the – like they think that that's the goal. And it's just like, no, that's not the goal. And 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 the people that talk about – and I, I I was sorry. I was kind of – it's a little different. It's just things I learned on my mind. I have noticed – it's like how your brain plays tricks on you in retrospect. So I have noticed, Josh, like there might be a – say I have a high running streak. At the time, I was nervous every shot during that run. Every shot looked challenging. How am I going to get those balls apart? What if I get stuck there? Ooh, I've missed this shot before. I really need to get off this ball and make sure it doesn't miss. This break shot, I, I want to make sure I've, got, I've, I've missed so many break shots in my life. I don't want it to be this one. I don't want to get stuck in the rack. I need to fill this rack apart. I, I you know, every Think of all the challenges that are run a straight pool. And every one of those was like fighting, 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 fighting. And then all the pressure that's building as you're getting into your higher runs and all this stuff and approaching bigger numbers and, and all the things you go through to do that. So if you were to ask me an hour after my high run how it went, I'd be like, oh, man, 
That was the hardest thing ever. Josh, I had this shot come up, and then I had to get this come up, and I didn't think I could do it, and I managed to do it. And then this came up, and I, I remember at this number, I had this. Oh, my gosh, it was so tough, and I didn't know if I had it in me. Somehow the ball went in. I, I really, you know what I mean? It's like it's like this kind of what you'll notice about the recalling of the, the retelling of that story is that, like, it's kind of like this. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't know if I could do it. It was so tough. I, it looked impossible, but I did my best, and somehow – just things worked out and I don't know what came over me, but I was gifted by something from, from the grace of God where that happened. Mm -hmm. So that would be an hour later. If you asked me the next day and I told that story the second time, it would be like, yeah, it was a tough run, but I came with some stuff and it was really hard. But if you asked me, like after I told that story four times, people have asked me, all of a sudden I'll just be like, yeah, I hit him with a 110. You know what I mean? It was like, it's just kind of like you forget what it really was. You forget what the experience really was. You, it's just so funny how our brain plays tricks on us because they, there's like, anyway, I, I could go deeper. That's as deep as I want to go in it. I'll just say that that don't remember the, the orange shoes. Don't remember like, the, yeah, I hit him with 110. It's like, no, no, no. No, that's not what happened. That's a that's a perversion of of history right there. That's what happened was you were giving all of your, what you had, everything looked tough. You were working your hardest. And sometimes, sometimes you're crazed with some good results in the short term. And when that happens, you smile and you take it and then you go back. Mm. Yep. Nice. All right. Knuckles. All right. Well, now we're heating up. Um, we had a cool story. I wanted to let you talk a little bit about, but our, uh, one of our clinics that we just ran. Mm -hmm. So again, if people are interested in uh, group training to be at a lower price point and a lower time commitment than three days with me, uh, we've got some clinic clinic stuff going on. You can reach out to me. But Josh, you know what I'm talking about. Tell me about tell me about uh, we, you know, the the story about the player and their stroke. I thought this was pretty funny. Yeah. So we started the clinic and uh, we had eight players there in Demi Night. Was it eight or six? Eight. Eight. And we peeled off four piece and. Um, I was working with four of them, and one of the players was uh, like immediately frustrated. I mean, within the first you know few shots, it was noticeable to me, and so I'm like, okay, that's that's interesting. And so, um, so I sort of watched watched her a little bit, and 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 uh, saw her continue to kind of talk about, well, I'm just not, I just don't have it today. Like I'm, I, it's and it's like we're literally 20, <laughs> ten minutes into it, hit hit a half dozen shots, and I was like, okay, let's, and I so and then I so I'm like, okay, I'll just put a put a note on that. I'll, I'll just see how it develops, and so you know, a little bit later, um, kind of more of the same, and then I saw her checking her stroke on the uh, on the rail, okay, down the diamonds, the John Mora. Yep, and I said, okay, let's. I'm just gonna mix it up here like uh, this is I, I can only do what i can do and, and and do what i think is right so th this is what i thought was right in the moment and this is what i ended up doing so i walked up to her and i said hey i uh you know talk to her you know how you doing whatever how's it going and she was kind of like well I, you know I'm, I'm not doing that great and, and here now we're in for a half hour 40 minutes into the thing and i said okay and i and i have a lot of experience with seeing people stroke check and um and uh yeah wanting to have like perfect fundamentals and if you've listened to the podcast you probably know where i'm at with fundamentals somewhat and uh which i got a funny story about that fundamentals too um but but so anyways i just grabbed i pulled her aside and i said hey um 
my read is I see a check in your stroke. Your fundamentals are perfect. I go, your stroke is perfect. Your stance, everything is absolutely perfect. You, you, um, you're fine. Like you're good. And it, that's not where we're, that's not where you're going to grow. And that's, and I grabbed the cue ball and I held up the cue ball and I said, I, I held it really close to her, to her, to her face, not in an intimidating way, <laughs> <laughs> not in, but in a, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a way to explain, illustrate. And I said, this, this is where we, this is where we're heading with this game for you. We're heading right here. And I pointed at the object ball and I said, and we're heading there and striking. I said, we are going to learn the cue ball and we are going to continue to use your great striking because you're a great striker. And I'm telling you, like, I've played a lot of pool. I've trained a lot of people. Fundamentals and your stroke straight is not where it's at. Your your straight stroke like that. It's perfect. It's fine. I'm giving you permission to just stop thinking about that. And I, uh, and I think it's awesome how straight and strong your stroke is. And let's let's work on the cue ball. Let's work on the striking. And uh, and then I just explained to her quickly that with her focus on her fundamentals and her stroke straight, uh, stroking straight, that distracts her from the contact point and the strike. And it, it just clouds out her brain so that she can't consider the cue ball as intent, intently as she needs to, and then switch to the object ball through the process. So it's all about striking the cue ball accurately and striking the ball accurately to pocket it. And if you're worried about your fundamentals or your stroke straight, or that's where the answer is at, that's not where the answer is at, especially when you have a perfectly stroke straight stroke. So, and so, yeah. and so what, I, what I thought was the most powerful part of the story, I'm going to set you up for, the, the, everything you said, and then if you were to look at the main idea of what you said was basically, you know what, you're at a spot where we're going to get better. You need to work on other things like cue ball striking and other areas. That, and, and, that, and that for now, at this point in your career, for all effective purposes, for all practical purposes, your fundamentals are as close to perfect as they ever need to be. So you're good. You check out there. That's not what you need to worry about right now. And what was her reaction when you told her? Well, she was she like had this washed over relief that it was visible. Yeah. And it was just like, she just sort of went from super tense to like super calm and relaxed looking. And she just said, thank you. I, it, to, to me, you, you said that she had this sigh, like this deep sigh yeah. of like, yeah. like, like almost like a quivering, crying, like I'm, I don't have to beat myself about yeah. my stroke anymore. And for months she'd been talking, she told me that she'd been in a slump and that she'd been struggling lately and she wasn't, she was kind of grindy and not having much fun. And she was kind of miserable and underperforming and trying to stroke, you know, stroke, stroke, stroke. And when you told her she could let it go, to see her almost cry with relief mm -hmm. and to see her shoulders slump and her to let out a sigh and then start smiling and hitting balls again, yeah. to me, that almost makes me cry. Like, yeah. And so the reason if we keep, if we keep harping on this, so let me tell you my story because I had one this week. I talked to a gentleman from from uh, northern Alabama, and um, he told me that he's working on his stroke and fundamentals, and he's taken courses with you know Christina Koch, and he's worked with you know some fundamentals people, and really worked on his stroke. and And he has been frustrated lately because he doesn't understand why, like. Each day he'll go and he's, he hits like 400 straight in shots a day, which you know how many 400 is. That's a lot of balls. Now, maybe it's not every day. Maybe it's not every session. But like he's, he spends hours and hours and hours shooting straight in shots. 
and and he'll figure it out. Like he'll be missing balls, and I'll be like, "Why am I missing this ball?" And then he'll figure it out, and then there'll be a solve. And I'm like, "Look, I don't go down that road, but I I have done the certain drills that we we've done together that are involve straight in shots, and I've." I'm a, I'm a heck of a player and I've been playing this game a long time. And after all these years, every time I do that drill, it's, I don't know if the balls are going to go in. You know what I mean? Like every time, like sometimes they go straight in. And when that happens, it's like, oh, okay. And then other times they keep cutting just a little where they're hitting the side rail and wobbling or for whatever reason, they look straight and it doesn't feel right. And then, and then sometimes, you know, and, and I've gone through it where I've done this a little bit where it's like, try to understand why that happens. And, and you might think you have a fix like, oh, okay, it's because my, my grip was like this or my elbow was like this. But like then the next day it's something else. And then and then what are you going to like manually write down a hundred different fixes and try to manually control all that? Like it doesn't work. And so what I think what I think is at the middle of this and what was on my mind and what I told him is we there. OK, there are observations, there are facts and there are stories. So when we look at observations and we just look at like, what do we know to be factually true? Let's look at that versus what are the stories that we tell ourselves that we think are true without any evidence. So the facts are this, straight in shots. I've never met a player that can just always get up and just, they always go exactly in the center of the hole, you know, all day long. Like I've never met that player. I've seen everybody like now I've seen better players than others and I've seen players that, you know what I mean? But, mm-hmm. but I've, I've just never met the player that had perfect fundamentals that, that never had their stroke, you know, out of line a little bit um, or break down a little bit. But what I have seen is everybody I've talked to is, and now, and, and, and then there's something where people can talk to like, well, what about Federer? It's like, yeah, I know. No, but anyway, forget about Federer. We're not Federer anyway. So the point is what I have seen is, is that for me, I never know. I never know what's going to happen. And for all my students I've talked to that practice straight in shots, they're all telling me the same story. So I want everybody listening to know this is a universal experience. Like everybody kind of goes through this. So the facts are, apparently the truths are that the straight in shots that we're practicing are tougher than we think they are. And that we're not quite as good as we think we are. And that the limitations of being in a human body and a human brain are a little bit more limiting than we think. Because the story that people are telling themselves is this. This is a straight-in shot. A, a, a reasonably good pool player ought to be able to step in the same way, stroke in the same way, get on the ball in the same way, to where a simple straight-in shot, you know, should be executed at maybe not 100%. But, like, if I shot 100 of these, like, realistically, it ought to get to the spot where it's, like, 95, 97, 98 out of 100 to where, you know, once in a while, if I get lazy, careless, or just have a, you know, a, a human error, I suppose, by just 100 or 200, I can live with that. But I ought to be able to get on this ball, stroke by stroke, see the contact point, and have it go where I'm looking, like clockwork all day long. And then from there, I can build on that. And I'm sitting here at like, you know, some days I can miss five out of 10 or, or something like that. So like, there's just something horribly on fire. And like, that's, that's people's kind of story of what they think they ought to be able to do. And then they're just like, they think that everything's like on fire. Whereas in my experience, I've just never seen any evidence that that story is true. And I think that believing that story just leads to a lot of frustration. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Like, same, same. And when you said uh, the straight in shot, I just put my head down <laughs> on the table and like almost started crying. 
I, I just, I see it, man. I see a lot of people shooting hundreds of straight in shots, thinking that they're going to straighten out their stroke and then they're going to take their perfectly straight stroke and then add it into the thousands of different shots that they need to with different speeds and angles and all the cue ball stuff we're talking about. And it's like, the, it just doesn't work that way. And it's very much um, just a rabbit hole for, for frustration and pool does not work that way. And that's what I was explaining to this gal. It's like, when I put the cue ball up and showed it to her, I'm like, this is where pool happens. It happens on this ball and it happens on that ball, the object ball. It doesn't happen in your arm as like some sort of pendulum straight thing. It just, it doesn't like that. There is, there's aspects of pool and fundamentals and straight or not straight and all that is totally true, but, but it's not where the meat and potatoes of the game is. And it's not, you're never going to get to, uh, higher levels by just sitting there and stroking straight in shots. And it's just, it's sad. I'll tell you why it's sad because there's a, there's a gentleman in Minnesota. He's a really nice guy, but I'd go to the pool room for 25 years. And I, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating Debbie 20 or 25 years. And I'd watch him shoot straight in shots for 20 or 25 years. And I just, it looked like, uh, he just kind of reminded me like when you go to the zoo and you see the animal walking the same loop and yeah. you think, you know, it's really sad. And, and it's like, they like polar <laughs> yeah. bears. If you go to the Como zoo, there's a local small zoo around here and you'd see the polar bears walking the same loop every day for years. And it's like, it's just, to me, it was sad. And, and I just think that's, that's what I, I'm not saying what well, everyone's going to turn into that, but gosh, man, it's like when I hear people shooting hundreds of straight in shots, I think they're closer to that than they are a, a pool yeah. player that's developing and learning and, and having fun with the game. Yeah, I think that, and so two parts. So first of all, I do want to, I, I know that there's a lot of pushback on this. Neither. So just to be clear, I think we're both on the same page about one thing, which is I'm, we're not saying that there's, you should never hit straight in shots. We're not saying you should never you know, try to play well. Although there are like, as far as developing fundamentals, but you can develop fundamentals when you're asking yourself to strike certain shots and hit certain cue ball shots. A lot of times you can work on your fundamentals indirectly by practicing other stuff. It will demand your fundamentals smooth out. Yes. But, but the idea of spending, the idea of spending half an hour twice a week out of your practice, hitting straight shots and just trying to kind of still focus and, and on a nice swing and a nice delivery and then try to anchor that feeling. I don't think like if I told you that somebody was spending half an hour twice a week out of all their practice and play kind of hitting straight shots, I don't think you'd probably care. But when it starts becoming an hour a day and just on this mad quest, you know, that's I, I think a, it's, yeah, it's, it's not even 80, 20 reversed. It's like 95, five. Yeah. It should it's be like 5%. Five, at the yeah, most, exactly. 5% the most. Like yeah. If you want to, if you want to warm up and hit a few straight in shots for warm up, or if you want to do a drill where like I, like when we did that drill, we, we would hit like 25 straight in shots. Yeah. And then yeah. we would do that sometimes. Yeah, we wouldn't do it every session. We yeah. do it sometimes. But okay, so we're not saying that. And we weren't doing it sitting there looking back at our arm to make sure our arm was straight. And Demi, he checked and turned the film on Demi to see if my arm's straight and level. Yeah, we're just we were just hitting straight in shots because that was one of the things. One of the things that we practiced. So, so that's, I, I think yeah. like what you're saying, Demi, is 100 percent right. If someone was saying 10 percent of the time they're working on their stroke and their fundamentals, or 20 percent even, like you could you could 
pip me up to 20%, I'd be fine with it. But what I'm finding is 80% of the time people, and they're putting 80% of their brain power and focus and 80% of the responsibility of their game on their fundamentals. And it's wrong. It's backwards. It's, it's, it's 20%, not 80. They've got, yeah. they got it reversed. And most people, have, you know, a, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So if they've already developed their fundamental link to a high level, uh, they can sit there and work on that for the rest of their life. And that's not where they're breaking down in competition. It's mental. It's, it's cue ball. It's tactical. It's, it's pattern play. It's, yeah. it's understanding, you know, percentages and understanding mental game and understand learning and learning different techniques and different routes and different, um, Face face lines of where the cue ball is going to go on certain shots and how to control it better. Can, can I? Yeah. I want to have something on fundamentals because I told you I was going to tell you a funny fundamental story. And then I also want to use it as an illustration for uh, training and how people view training. So is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing that you and I have been talking about training classes and advanced classes and um, you know how tricky they are, how difficult they are, and how much information you got to get. Uh, out to people and how they're going to need more specific information, whatever. And I appreciate that, but I wanted to talk about something that happened. Yeah. And, and as an as a comparative thing, so I'm I'm playing over 700, and I am playing pool with these guys. It's a new member, um, man, super super awesome dude, super bright, super awesome. He's only been playing pool for like a few months, and. He had his buddy there that has that that he that is that's not even a pool player hardly. The guy's got the bunny or bridge, basically. And so we're we're playing and we're and and so men in so I was trying to show this guy how to stand a little bit. And then men steps in. He's only been playing since like literally six months or less. And you know, seriously, or with a cue even, and, and he steps in and he shows the guy how to address the ball so that he's in perfect alignment and where his on his back foot and then where his front foot options can go. And he's explaining, he's like, well, this is more of a snooker stance. This is more of an American stance. This guy's only been playing for like a few months and I'm listening to the guy and I'm watching it. And I'm like, you know, he's much better at explaining this than I am. And I'm like this guy that plays pool forever. And, and it's funny because it, it's very humbling, but it also made me realize like, how we don't you put into that exactly. Well, yeah. yeah, how little I put into that, and how feely I am with it. Of course, right? Like I can, I can wiggle people into place and push on their shoulder. I can get them into the right stance. But like, there's a very simple way to do it. That's like a. I'm sure he watched a five minute YouTube video and he's like got it dialed in because he's a real mechanical. He's an engineer, so he has like the engineering mindset. And and so now I always dog engineers, but I'm like I'm clapping for for men and I'm saying this is awesome. So what I'm saying is. All that is what I'm saying, like humbling, interesting, cool. Um, but then also when when we talk, when when I hear you talk about advanced players and things, here I'm a 700 plus guy learning from a 350, like in the moment. And, and, real, and so it's like, there's always things that can be learned. And I think that if we have a tendency to get into this mindset where where we can only learn from people that are much better than us, or we can only learn certain things in our mind. You know what I'm saying? Like you get in this, people get in a mindset where it's like, well, I just need a perfect stroke. So I need someone that can teach me how to stroke perfectly, or I need this or I need that. But what I'm saying is um, I think that, that people can, can learn. Like I, I, I'm a guy that, that really likes to, to be around the basics. And even when we did our, our inner, our beginner class, like it was good for me to, to think about those, even though I'm instructing the class, 
I'm still doing the class and, and learning during the class. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian said the same thing. Brian, he, he, he sat in and listened to some of it, and he was like, "Wow!" He's like, "It was really cool to just kind of hear that." Yeah. I thought about that stuff for a while. And Brian's over seven hundred listening yeah, to it, a beginner's class, and so that, that's I just I just wanted to share that with people to try to get their brain going in the right direction to like open your mind up and think about how you can always be learning. And it's not, I just want people to have an open mind because I, I feel like sometimes I, uh, people get a little closed-minded. Well, when you know? you're talking about the animal at the zoo, and here's what kind of relates is that <clears throat> when this guy was hitting these 400 straight-in shots and it's not working, it's not, and, and it's really hard to know when it's working and when it's not working because, because how do you know if it's going to work and you just need to put in more time and effort and you're just on the perfect path, but it just hasn't come together yet. And it's like, well, if you've been on that path forever, you haven't seen any growth and all you're seeing is fatigue, discouragement, frustration, control, and 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 no improvement, then that then maybe that's not the right one. And so like when when this girl who sighed and almost cried with relief because you told her that she didn't have to be on that road, that's that's a good sign that maybe that was the wrong road. And and like for this guy who's shooting these 400 shots when I told him this, and I'm like, hey man. That's that's just half the balls missed. That's Thursday for me. I've never figured out how to make a perfectly straight stroke every time, and I, I stopped trying because I just learned how to play pool instead. <laughs> and, and like when I told him that, and he was just like, "Oh my god!" Like, like to me, that's part of the open mind because some people will be open minded and say, "Okay, maybe this is the wrong road. I'm open to trying some other stuff that might help me get better." But other people are like, "No, no, 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 no! I am going to be. I am going to demand for myself a perfect stroke. I am going to force this road to work." They're no longer, we've talked about it before, they're no longer serving the journey of what's going to get me better at pool. Now they're serving the journey of, I know I'm right with my approach to pool. I'm, I need to make it I need to make it work so I can prove that I was right and prove that it works my way. And it's like, bottom line is, I've talked about it before. There's your way, and then there's pool's way. And if you think you're going to dictate the pool of the universe, how your improvement's going to happen, then you're going to be beating your head against the wall. And you need to be the open-minded one to say, I think I had I had my idea of how I thought Pool wanted me to do it, but now I need to look at if it's working. And if it's not working, and if it's making me feel discouraged, frustrated, and and fatigued and and plateaued, then then maybe that's Pool telling me I need to be open minded to some different approaches here. Mm -hmm. That's it. So yeah, yeah. And then uh, I'm open minded to fundamentals now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and of course they play a role. Like we did the junior class, we're doing some junior training. Oh, yeah, some of these people actually had to make some changes. Yeah, need bridge help. Yeah, need, need stance help. Yeah, for sure. Cool, cool. All right, um, those were our warmups. I'm exhausted. Yeah, that's fatiguing. I'm, I feel like I've been shooting straight shots for four hundred. Not exactly. Nah. Um, okay, I'm going to take the lead on this one for just a minute, and I'll let you talk. There's this. There's a topic I wanted to talk about, which is like. The routine conversions on on uh, open balls. So when I we've we've talked a little bit about this before, but but I think this there's some cool ideas here, which is when we get so used to watching matchroom pros play, and when matchroom pros play, we're, we're they're always focused on like highlight reel shots, you know, amazing shots. Uh, how they got control of the table with some long bank, you know, some double jump shot, you know, the break and runs. But not just at like the amateur level, but like, you know, I guess I'm always kind of unsure. I kind of consider myself right in between amateur and pro. Um, 
because I'm not making a living at the game, nor could I playing national events. So I don't really consider myself a professional on that level. But I'm a very, if I'm not a pro, I'm a very, very strong amateur. And here's the point. Even at my level, um, most games, most sessions, most, most sets are decided by who's doing, the, who's converting on routine opportunities at a higher clip. That's it. Like who's running five balls out better. And so I can give just a couple examples so people know what I mean. There was a player once that played a money match playing bar table. And, and when people, when this player was probably around 580, far from rated, and they were in, and they were talking about like how important the break was going to be and how in order to win, they were going to have to put a lot of packages together and a lot of threes and fours. They played a race to 15. They played a few races to 15. And what I witnessed was there were a couple of break and runs, but there was no packages. There was no threes and fours. There might not have been a two. There might have been out of 15 racks. Let's just say the final score was 15 to 11, 15 to 12. Out of those 26, 27 racks, there might have been like two to three break and runs. But then, and then how many first inning runouts were there with the person that got to the table, cleaned the table with the full rack? And it was like, okay, so maybe they did two or three off their break. And then maybe the person that came up dry on the break, maybe there was another three off the open off the open table. So maybe if you look at first inning table runs, out of 26 games, it might have been, or 27 games, it might have been like five that were cleared on the first inning. Which means that there was 21 racks where somebody tried to run out and didn't. And then the other person came to the table with what looked like an open table to me. So they get to the table with all their solids wide open. And the other guy's got one or two stripes left that are in problem spots and kind of like, and, and it's like, okay, I can run out from there at a very high clip playing solids. And they would fumble. They would run a bunch of balls, get funny on their last ball, not be able to deal with that awkward ball, kind of get funny on it and, and end up leaving themselves half tough and missing. And I was looking at the conversion rates on those so-called open racks. And, and it might have been 50-50. It might have been 50-50. So if this person had, you know, if this person had, 10 chances to clean up those open solids. And this is at a 580 Fargo level, by the way. They might have ran out four of those times and they might have fumbled back six. And so there's a couple points to this story. The first thing is, if this person thinks that the key to them winning that set is going to be developing their break better and making more, like I needed to make more balls in the break, like that's just not a reality. That's not, that doesn't match what I witnessed. And if this person thinks that they need to be able to run, that the problem was that they were not running out full racks the best, like they had a couple swings at a full rack and they didn't run them out, I would say, well, that's not necessarily where you lost either. Because one, there was only a, you know, you ran out a few of the open racks and you couldn't run out a few of the, of the full racks. You ran out a few full racks and you messed a few full racks. But, but the biggest opportunity was the 10 open racks that you got to that had just solids left that you didn't run out. And, and if you, so if we can get that from 50-50 to 80-20, like you win that match. And if you can't get that from 50-50 to 80-20, then not only aren't you going to win that match, but if you can't do that, then trying to run more packages with full racks and breaking and full balls and all this stuff on the way, like if you can't get the open racks to 80-20, then how are you going to get these full racks and run packages? So the point of the story was, to me, it was like, when I was talking to this guy and kind of getting ready for his next match, I was really focused on 
What's going wrong on these open cleanup runs? What's going on? What's going wrong on these runs? And and how can we get these runs from 50-50 to 60-40 to 70-30? And and when do we know, you know, part of that is playing those runs a little bit better. Part of it is taking those a little bit more seriously. Part of it might be learning how to pivot and play a safety if things go poorly. But like, but like that is where the game is being won and lost, is edging your percentages on these open balls. And we've seen it time and time again playing watching nine ball. Uh, we're watching a match tonight between a couple of good amateur players, and it's going to be the same thing. It's not going to be decided by who's stringing racks. It's going to be decided by who's who's more consistently running out four or five open balls at the end of the rack. And then we've seen it, you know, at the 580 level playing big table nine ball. Uh, there's a lot of people where they're, you know, breaking and they're playing safeties on the one and they're coming with shots, but then it's very hard to run a full rack on nine ball. And even if they do once in a while, if all you knew is that one person was going to run from a run out from the six ball more often than the other, I bet on that guy, even without knowing how they broke and how they shot and everything else. So, so that's what I wanted to start with is just talking about the importance of the, the root, the stuff that's so, you know, it looks boring, but that's where like 80% of the match is. What do you think? A hundred percent. I mean, I just agree so much. And I, uh, I've, yeah. So like there was a gal that was at our Thursday night training last week or Tuesday night, one of those nights. And, she, and I said, well, what's your game? And she's like, eight ball. And I just, I gave her the same information. I said, what do you do now? She goes, well, I just break them and start hitting balls. And I said, okay, so now what we want to do is I want you to put the eight ball out and put a bunch of solids or stripes, four or five or six of them. And I want you to start running out to the eight ball from there. I want just, just one group with the eight ball and start picking the right patterns and shooting the right shots and just building up and maybe start with four balls on the eight ball or three balls on the eight ball, depending on wherever her level is. Um, so that's, that's, that was my advice. And and then, um, and she was like, Oh my gosh, I never thought of that. And I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's the way, you can do it because <laughs> because it's just the, the idea is, and I told her, I said, if you can mop up four balls in eight ball, you're going to crush your leagues and you're going to win a lot more matches and, and you know, do really well. So you just want to do the simple stuff or not the simple stuff, but the open, open racks. Yeah, yeah. And then I would say the same, you know, like we had a 625 and under tournament that was coming here and it was 10 ball and it, it, it happened and, and it was cool. Um, but anyways, my thought on it was just like before it started, I was trying to help three different players that are that are members, and I was giving them all the same information. And the information, the secret information I gave them was play the five ball ghost because the person that can clear five balls on 10 ball on these four and a quarter, nine foot tables is the person that's going to win the tournament. Yep. So five open balls with, with relatively easy transitions, just build and and and, and and keep doing that and where that came from. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast is that turning stone, probably a, a big part of Derby. I'm not talking about us open international events against Eurobots, but I'm talking about more national level events. I felt like it's a seven, eight ball open rack game. And I spent a lot of time playing ghost eight ball and pulling balls off the table so that those balls are open. I'm talking hundreds and thousands of racks that way and train that way because I wanted to get the 80% with eight balls on the table and no problems and just some transitions. And I just ground out those runouts and people in people, you know, and I know people are playing 10 ball ghost and Alex playing the 12 ball ghost and all this stuff, but I'm, I'm not Alex and 10 balls a frustrating game. And I've talked about this before and I pushed all my chips in on the eight ball ghost and 
it was very, very beneficial, you know, because when I got to Derby, I had a Hill Hill match and got control of the table with eight balls on the table against a super player and stayed calm and, and you know, got through it because, you know, and it's like, I think whatever it is, the level that you're at, I think there's a ghost number. And I talked about this with people. There's a ghost number that you should be playing so that. And it's lower than they think. Lower than, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I, we, Demi and I could probably sit if we thought about a pen and paper for more than two minutes and come up with a, you know, a Fargo rate system on how, how many balls you should have out there. But yeah, it's, it's lower than you think. And, and even when I was getting ready to play the eight ball ghost, I probably started at the four or five ball ghost. Uh, just to make sure that I was good there, you know, and, and then then quickly I realized it's probably my number to, to get to 80%. And so I just would work from work from that so that my confidence is up. I'm feeling good. I'm running balls and I'm having to focus to stay in that 80% range. So, so yeah, a couple of things I'll jump right in. So one, there's a couple of myths. Again, these are stories that may not actually work. Like there's a lot of people that are like, well, I want to play 15 ball rotation because then if I'm playing 15 ball rotation, that's what the Filipinos did learning. And, you know, that's how effort got so good. So if I do that, then when I get to nine ball, it's going to look stupid easy. But in, re in reality, what happens when people play 15 ball rotation is the first half of the rack takes half an hour and they're kicking and making one ball at a time. And then they're ineffectively, you know, giving a ball in hand and taking turns running one ball until they get down to the eight or the nine ball where they've got six balls left anyway. And, 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 and anyway, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really work. So I also want to talk about a way that people could get better with, with this because there's, there's, Two different ways that you can play against short rack that are beneficial. One is what Josh is saying, which is find the level of ghost to where instead of finding the level of ghost that's like you're losing most of the time and it's really hard, or even the level of ghost that's 50-50, find the level of ghost where you got the best of it, but then just try to beat it 80%, 90%, see how high you can get your win rate. So that's one, that's a really good approach that most people. Most people think that they're not growing unless they're taking on something that's too hard for them and trying to find a way to make it possible. But it's actually, it's, it's about taking stuff that you can do and getting to where you can do it more and more and more routinely. Yeah. That's actually much more beneficial. So the only thing about that is if that's, that's good to do, that's totally good. It should be a percentage of your play, hundred percent. But then the only thing is that you might not be developing I, I think about how I learned and how I got better and what made me, what helped me the most. And so I'm going to share another approach, which is instead of playing a bunch of different racks where maybe, maybe like, for example, say that eight ball example where you're throwing five balls on the eight ball and trying to run out eight ball racks, that's good practice. At the same time, if they are lacking certain tools, lacking certain skills, lacking certain knowledge, if all they're doing is what they're doing is practicing what they already know. And then they're going to run out the ones that they could with the skills they have and then fail at the ones that they couldn't with the skills they didn't have. And then they're just kind of waiting to get the right distribution of balls where they had the tools needed to run through those balls. And then they're just kind of failing. them. So here's where I'm going with this. The value of practicing one layout that looks routine to a high level. So to me, I compare this to a musician learning a song. Now your son's playing some guitar, you know, I've, you know, like when somebody's learning a musical instrument, suppose your son said, Hey, I want to learn to play guitar. So here's what I'm going to do. I've print, I got online and I printed out 200 different songs of sheet, 200 different pages of sheet music. 
And what I'm going to do is set up my, my music stand. I'm going to put one piece of sheet music in front of me. And then first time I'm going to look at it, I'm going to try to play it once through in real time. And I'm going to be missing notes and you couldn't even tell what song it is. And I'm missing chords and everything's screwed up. And I'm going to stumble through that song once at real speed. And then I'm going to take that piece of sheet music, crumple it up and throw away and go to the next song. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go through 200 songs. That's how I'm going to become a good guitar player. Like you'd look at that person and be like, that makes no sense. Because what you do is... First, you warm up and you work on some scales or some chords or some chord progressions or whatever. And then, and then after your little warm up, then you put up one song and you go to one measure and you, and you go to the notes and the chords in that one measure and you play it slowly and accurately and you learn how to make those transitions accurately. And then, and then you play the next measure until you can play the whole line slowly. And then you work on playing the whole line at real speed correctly with the right tones and the right sounds and the right volumes. And that's how you learn how to play a musical instrument. But somehow when people want to play pool, they want to do the part where they just kind of rain through 200 different songs and hope that... Now, there's a point to that, and it's not... I'm not... It sounds like I'm contradicting. I'm not. There's a point to doing that. But let's talk about something else that you can also do, which is how do you work on one song until you get good at it? How do you... So what I did with pool is I would oftentimes work on one run where I would have... As a kid, anywhere from three, four, five, or six balls playing in rotation. And I would mark, I would put those balls in the same spot again and again and again. And I would work on those because I wanted to get to where I could run that one layout the same way again and again, like a gym that's putting out a routine. Like there's a way to run these balls out. There's skills I need. How do I run these balls out correctly? And, and by doing that, you might actually like develop you know, you might actually develop your game and be forced to ask some questions about how do I do that? And then you can, and then if you struggle with that run, then maybe you see a player at your league the next day and you say, how would you hit this? Or you ask a better player, how would you do this? Things like this. So I've got, I've got some tips on how to do that and how to practice that. But my, my, my overall opinion is a little bit of your time, not 50%, not 80%. It's probably closer to like Josh was saying about the fundamentals, like maybe 10%, maybe 10% of your time should be working on one layout. And then a lot of your time should be running open racks, open racks, open racks. So I just kind of made it sound like I didn't believe in running open racks. But the reason I believe in running open racks is because if all you're doing is working on one layout, then you're working on thinking and the analytical side and the technical side. And it's all this knowledge heady stuff. Whereas when you're playing the goals to get it again and again, it's actually about putting it all together, playing, dealing with mistakes. You know, it's more of a competitive mind. It simulates competition better. So I'm not a big, like, you don't want to be like some practice nerd where you're living in your head and you're not effective. So I think to be like 10% of your time working on a specific layout and then 80% of your time just running, 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 trying to run balls. Like to me, that's a good ratio. But I think that you it's almost like quality and quantity. You want to get your quantity in by playing a lot of racks against the ghost of real pool simulated play. But then you want a little bit of quality in there working on playing one run to a high level. So that's kind of my thought there. But I'll let you jump in. No, I, I, I agree. And, and, uh, that's really cool, man. And that's, that's what I, uh, you know, Kirk here is a member. That's what I showed Kirk the other day. I, uh, cause he does play rotation and I'm like, no, let's, let's get out the white stickies and do a layout. Cause I wanted him to learn how to kind of do that gymnast training thing. And, uh, and the cool, and so it was cool. And he enjoyed that. And 
I, I would say, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it might be a little higher than 10%, um, but that's just, you know. Yeah, I just yeah, want it's not, no, no, no. You're not supposed yeah. to be like that yeah. all you do. That's no, all. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think that there's humongous value in doing doing set layouts and marking them and doing them. And then I would also add that the, the, the real value is breaking the layout into the four or five shots. So there's three or four transitions that are key and three or four shots that need to get pocketed in order to run four or five balls. And so I like, um, you know, what I've done with Chris in the past is I've given him a four ball run and I've said, I would like you to hit or a three or four ball run. And I, I said, I'd like you to hit the first shot to this position zone and make the ball at 80%. And then you can go on to the next shot. And once you have that next shot at 80%, then you get to, you know, then you can put all the shots together and try to run out the entire thing at 80%. So that was sort of a, you know, Chris is more of a beginner type person. And so I spent some time breaking down a four ball run out into, into its, into its individual shots and having him shoot those at any, you know, try to get those at 80% clips. So I, I think there's tremendous value in doing that too. Yeah. So I, I have so many different directions I could go from here because there's so many things I worry about. Like, what if you're practicing running these balls the wrong way? What if you don't know how to make these transitions to where they're always a, a trick shot? What if you set up a layout that's so tough that there is no way to practice it to 80% because you've just set up a really tough layout and you don't know it and you're beating your head against the ball? Or what if your solutions are all weird and backwards because nobody else would play it that way? And there's all kinds of concerns I have because... That's why it's like, I really wish, you know, that's why I like training with people so that they have some direction. Yeah. And they, they, because if you, what I found with my students is that they were all wanting to practice layouts that were really tough. Yeah. That they wanted to practice stuff that had really demanding transitions and problem zones and problem shots and short side and all the reasonable routes to approach the shot line were blocked. And it's like, they're setting up. So it's like, if you're on the one hand, if all you do is hang the balls, that's no good. But on the other hand, if all these layouts are like super convoluted, like why are those are not the ones I want to practice? I think there's more value in practicing stuff that looks routine, but people keep messing it up. Let's find out. So that's what I would say is the difficulty level should be stuff that looks like, oh, this should be routine, but then you don't always run about why not? How do we get to where we're doing it more often? Yeah. So that's my hint. Uh, but okay. What I'm going to give you guys is to make it fun. I'm going to give you guys some of my favorite ways to practice a specific layout. And they go from like easy to very ninja level. So just different ways that you can kind of mix it up and, you know, different ways you can prepare the same food ingredients so that you're not eating the same meal every day. So the first one is suppose you've worked on a layout for 20, 30 minutes, and now you want to test yourself. Here's some different ways you can test yourself. I'm going off memory here. I could have written this down. But one is just a race against the ghost or a race against that layout. Okay, you've worked on it for 20, 30 minutes. Now you're going to play a race to seven against that layout to see if you can beat that layout seven times before you dog it seven times mm -hmm. as a fun little wrap of exercise. That's, that's one fun way. Another fun way to go that's like the next level of challenge would be what I call the stepping stone, where you actually map out a target for each shot that you have to hit. And you can do that. I use Taylor's chalk. You can buy a Taylor's chalk pencil. Uh, you also need a Simonis X1 to take the chalk off the table when you're done. But anyway, you can actually map out however you want to do it. If you want to use an actual chalk on the table or just have like kind of a stickers to indicate your zone, have like certain shots. Like I need to get here and then I need to get here that I need to get here. And then you have to run out, not just to where you run out, but to where you hit each landing spot with the cue ball throughout your run out. So you're always in good lane. So that would be like, I see Coral Lowry do stuff like that. And I, yeah, I like that. So that's what I call stepping stones. Then 
Another way to practice it is one of my favorites. It's called, I would call it the reverse progressive, or where you start, you take, say you've got a, a six ball run, you're going to work on it. You take ball in hand and you shoot in the nine. Great. Now you take ball in hand and you set up the eight, nine, and you put yourself where you'd like to be on that eight ball, a reasonable play, and you shoot the eight, and then get on the nine and shoot the nine. And if you run those two, then you set up the seven, eight, nine, and you take ball in hand in the seven, eight, nine. Say you get to the six ball. Now you take ball in hand and shoot the six, seven, eight, nine. But this time you dog, dog the eight. Okay. Well, now you're back to the seven. Now you set up the seven, eight, nine again. Mm -hmm. What I love about this challenge is you get good at converting the end of the rack. And then as you get better and better at converting the end of the rack, you keep, you don't, you just make it a little harder by adding that one more ball in front, one more ball in front, one more ball in front. So you start where it's really manageable and then you gradually increase it. So instead of starting at the beginning of the run and then going until you fail again and again, you practice successfully completing the run out at the end again mm -hmm. and again and again. Yeah. And then as that gets more and more routine, you can add a little bit to the front of the run. So you practice successful. And I actually stole this from uh, apparently the ancient Greeks when they wanted to memorize like these epic long, you know, thousand page poems or whatever. They would they would actually start at the end of the poem and mm -hmm. practice successful completion, successful completion, and then just add, keep adding a sentence because that way they would never just practice getting stuck and forgetting again and again and again. And the other thing I like about that is that as you go back in the run, by the time you get to that five ball, you actually feel some pressure because you know that if you dog it, you got to go back to the six ball yeah. and run them back out again just to have a chance to get back to the five. And you don't want to spiral your way back to the seven ball and have to, like, it puts some heat on you, man. It puts some heat on you. Yeah, no, for sure. So I kind of like that. Yeah, that sounds really good. And do you mark all the balls on the same layout? Yeah, yeah, same layout. Yep. Okay. No, sounds good. So I like that. And then, uh, and then the hardest level, the ninja level, is the three time drill, oh, yeah. which I've talked about before. And this one, you, and again, each of these, like, what level should you use depends on the layout. The, the harder layouts, you should probably just play a race against the ghost. The easier the layout is, the more of the demanding practice technique you can use. So with a really routine layout, if you're feeling good and the routine and the layout looks really full, I want that layout to look like, you should look at it and say, there's no way I could mess this. If you think that this layout is so easy, there is no way to mess it up. Mm -hmm. Now you may try the three times. Mm -hmm. And the way that one works is, you have five balls on the table. I would not recommend more than five for both players. You shoot the five ball, the first ball, three times. And you mark where the cue ball stops each time. And then you have to pick the worst of those three cue ball spots. And now your second shot, the six ball, you have to play from the worst of those three spots. And you have to shoot the six ball three times. And then the cue ball, you mark where the cue ball stops each time. And now when you're on the seven ball, you have to play that shot from the, that spot three times. So you're always playing the worst of three attempts. And what you'll find is you'll hit, you know, you'll make the first ball in hand, you'll make it all three times, but one of those spots was a little bit awkward. And now it just spirals to where when you're using the worst of, the worst of, the worst of, it becomes surprisingly difficult to run even five balls in order, even if they look routine. But that shows you how tough the game is and how how attention to detail matters and how it'll teach you which spots are better or which spots are worse. So some of the things you can expect to learn from that are the only way to run through the three-time drill is to get it to where your cluster of where your cue ball stop, that scatter of cue ball positions, has to be tight enough to where you can play the worst of three all the way through the run and have none of them be that bad. Because if any of them get bad, it's just going to become hopeless pretty quick.
So that's my three time drill. I, I I invented that one. I'm I'm proud of that one. I like yeah, that. That's an awesome. So so that's good for easy runs, and it's really good to really teach some respect for the difficulty of the game and fighting to be able to hit small scatters with the cue ball and try to find the right. It'll teach you the right patterns and the right things to get through because anything but the right patterns and the right cue ball maneuvers just won't work. Mm-hmm. So I think those I actually did right have to refer to my notes. I think those are some of the things I wanted to talk about. Is like oh, I didn't even write them down. But those are some different ways of those are some different ways of practicing one layup from easy to difficult. So from easy race versus the ghost, stepping stone, reverse progressive, three time drill. I feel like I might be missing one, but that's a good that's a good that's layup. That's great. That's a great yeah bunch of information right there. Yeah, so some fun ways to practice one song like a musician. Mm-hmm. Okay, one second. All right. Oh, and hey, before we move to our last topic, one thing I wanted to mention, and again, I just wish I could train with everybody. How do they know that they're training the right, like they're running out the right way? So, you know, like what, when they're practicing a layout, what I would say is there's a couple ways that you could do it. So you're practicing the right things and learning because like my fear is, and what I think is going to happen is that most players are going to look at a layout. They're going to be missing key pattern ideas and key cue ball maneuvers. They don't know certain maneuvers. They don't know certain shots. And then they're going to try to run out these balls the wrong way using the tools and understandings that they have. And then they're going to either be beating their head against the wall, never able to achieve consistency, or they're going to have a really routine run where they can stumble through it kind of ineffectively. And and they might not really learn that much if you're just practicing what you already know. So how do you practice in such a way that you're actually growing and making growth and discoveries and new ideas and new techniques. And so without a coach, it's very hard. But fortunately, here's a couple, so I would say call me, <laughs> but here's some things you can do. Maybe the one thing you could do is watch Pro Pool and watch a run out that they make that looks routine, like a five, six ball run, and then set those balls up and try to kind of work on running them the way that pro ran. Like that's one way to do it because you know that they probably did it okay. If it looks normal, like if they're not jacked up and making recovery shots. Another thing that's really cool is YouTube. You have guys like Tor Lowry and you have guys like Sharafari and Dr. Dave that are putting out content that have runs. Like Tor Lowry has a channel. If you don't follow him and you want to know what I'm talking about, like he has a channel where he'll set up four and five ball runs and draw the targets and explain what he's doing to get from ball to ball and why. And then he'll run them out. So you could like set up those balls and run them out exactly like him. He even has a book of like patterns and layouts where it's like here practice through these layouts and each one has certain key positional ideas and key things that you have to do with your cue ball. And he tells you how to do it and shows you how to do it. So it's like, to me, if I can't coach you, like that's where I would steer you is some of these guys on YouTube that are doing exactly this. So I would say instead of just trying to figure it out on your own, model yourself after either a professional player that's running those balls, just know that they're not able to teach and explain it to you. Or even better, find a guy like Tor Lowry or Sharavari that's working through a specific layout. And if Sharavari is showing you a nine ball run, just set up the last five balls and try to run those last five balls the way he showed in the video. And he'll show you like the speed he's using and the English he's using and why. And if you work through, the reason I said 10% and not 80 is because I really feel like it's pretty involved. But like watch a match, pick a layout, mark them up and work on that layout for half an hour to an hour. Then go to the pool hall and ask a better player how they would play that transition if you struggle with it. And then have them show you and then work on that and then go back and try that layout again with a new tool. That type of process 
if people did that once a month, after a year, they've worked through 12 layouts to a high level. The, their knowledge of patterns will increase. Their knowledge of cue ball will increase. Their toolbox will increase. And their, and their runout game will increase. And it's like, they will get so much better doing that. So I think that instead of telling people to do that half the time or all the time, I'm like, hey, do it once a month. Because if you spend half an hour to an hour on a layout twice, once on your own, and then once after getting some feedback, boy, a couple hours a month doing that over a year is 12 layouts. Practicing one layout to a high standard that pushes and helps you develop and grow, improve your ability to visualize targets, improve your ability to pick targets and play patterns and improve your cue ball and your execution and your cue ball toolbox and cue ball control and your tip accuracy. Like that will do more for your game than all the stroking in the world. And so I, I, I've done it, Josh. I've seen you've done it. Like I've seen it with my students. I just think that working through one layout a month like that for a year will do more for them than anything else. And, and it doesn't have to be every day. It just has to be something. And of course, if they want to do it twice a month, that's fine. But like, I think, you know, anywhere from once a week to once a month, working through a set layout of balls is probably good. And if for people that aren't doing it at all, that feel overwhelmed, I'd say once a month is at least a good start compared to that. That's all. Cool. All right. Ready to rock. I got one funny. Okay. So now here's a, here's a question. Here's my listener question. From Demetrius Gelatis. This is my longtime listener. Longtime listener. You might have, anyway, I wrote in and asked myself this question. It's been on my mind because it's uh, in, a, in a little bit here, I'm going to be playing a uh, match against Tony Chohan. So we've got the Slate Billiard Club. Tony Chohan is coming out. And as part of his uh, week, a week with T Rex, uh, it's going to end with two <laughs> challenge matches where I play him two races to seven one Saturday night, one Sunday night. And it's going to be playing race to seven one pocket. And Tony is a hell of a one pocket player. Um, he just won the Derby City Classic. He won the International Open one pocket last year. So he's won like two major one pocket titles that I know of just in the last eight months. And then, I mean, I know that it's like, yeah, if he plays Filler and Fetter, um, or, you know, maybe Alex, you know, there's like, there's a few other people that that have beat him. And that if he were to play, he, he might not be able to win against. You know, I know Shane beat him uh, like 24 to 22 or something. So, like, there's there's a handful of players in the world that may either be the favorite or be right there with him. But anyway, I would say he's top five in the world, certainly top in the, you know, top top five in the world. And he's he's about as good as it gets playing one pocket. And he plays an amazing, amazing game of one pocket. And so what that means is, Coming into this match, I'm playing him a race to seven. Now, playing him a race to three at Derby would already be exceptionally difficult. Uh, but at a race to seven, an interesting thing happens, which is it's hard for me to see any kind of road to victory. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what do you do? How do you prepare for a match when winning is not necessarily impossible but it's very difficult. It feels impossible. What do you do when winning looks and feels impossible? Like, how do you prepare for that match? What are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. You kind of brought this up before we, before we launched the podcast here and I've been thinking about it a little bit. I, uh, so I'd say it's just process. Like you just have to set your process approach your process mindset and a process goals, quote unquote, and just have that be the forefront of your mind. And so 
that's it. And so the other thing like you were just saying, it's T-Rex. I mean, the guy's an absolute crusher. He's, he definitely is top five in the world of one pocket. I feel like for sure. And he's, he's just, and not only is he that, he's just a rain eight and outs guy. So it's even, it's even more intense, more pressure, more daunting. I would, I would assume for you um, or for anyone that's playing him. And, uh, you know, so I don't, I don't want to be hyperbolic or overstate, but like, I feel like every time I put my cue together, I'm, I'm in that situation. I just, I just do. I, I don't, I don't feel super confident when I play pool. I, I feel like at any time I'm vulnerable, I can miss any shot. You know, I, I, I just, I feel that way. And so I just have to approach pool with a process mindset. And that's, that's sort of, not what protects me, I guess, but it just keeps me in the right frame of mind and keeps me more positive and more accepting of outcomes and more present focused and all those things. So I just think um, that's what I've done and that's that's what's kept me going and has uh, been beneficial. So there you go. Yeah. So I 100% agree. I think that there's it goes, there's some things we can talk about beyond that, but that, I 100% agree. So process mindset, what that means is for people that aren't really up to speed, you could either sit there and say, okay, I need to find a way to win against this guy. I need to beat this guy. And it's like, well, the problem is I, if I don't see a road to victory, and now what I, for now, let's just say it's impossible for me to win. I'm not saying it is. Uh, I don't think it's technically impossible, but like there's a point at which like if I played Federer or race to 110, Let's just use that as an example. Say I'm playing Federer race to 110 ball. Like there's really not a road to victory. You know, there's not like some game plan I'm going to put together in my basement where I'm going to hit him with some special, you know, like this is not a movie. You know, move him. Yeah, I'm not, I'm just, it's like there's just not really a road to victory. Yeah. So then you could sit there and say, well, mathematically speaking, I'm sure Mike Page with Fargo rate could like, or Steve Ernst could like put together, hey, Steve, could put together like some amazing algorithm where it's like, you know, Every every five thousand, you know, like out of like five billion universes, there's a universe out there where I'm like, ah, everything lined up. For me. Yeah, yeah. But like realistically, I don't have a road to victory. So what do you do in that spot? And so what Josh is saying is, what you can't really think about is, am I going to win or not, or how do I win? What you have to think about instead are, or how many games am I going to win? I just got to get to a certain amount of games or something. Yeah, you have Good to show instead, it. Yeah, you can't board. really set result goals. You just have to sit there and say, what can I control? And so, of course, I've thought about this. So let's just talk about specifically what things can you control in a game of one pocket? You can control your decision-making. You can control your your effort and your attitude. I, you know, so like, so like just getting down to the processes. This is like, for me, this was kind of where I started was processes. So like, what can I control? So, well, my decision-making. Now, you might think, well, that's pretty easy. But in one pocket, man... It's a funny game. You have a lot more choices in one pocket than you do in nine ball. And when you start getting snake bit, where you feel like nothing I'm doing is working and I don't have confidence in my ability, or I'm playing T-Rex and I can't leave them anything, or I'm playing T-Rex, so if I don't make this five-rail bank right now, then I'll never have another chance to score. You can go into desperation mode. You can go into give-up mode. And your decision-making can go haywire really fast in one pocket, yeah, yeah. right? It can yeah, really yeah. get weird. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways for your decision. I mean, in nine ball and 10 ball, it can happen. But one, I've got a lot more experience playing those games. And two, the right shot is more evident more of the time. Whereas in one pocket, man, your decision can go, your decision making can go really haywire. So just try to say, hey, listen, I don't know if it's always going to work, but I'm going to try to make decisions such that if the shot, here's, here's kind of my uh, pre-shot decision checklist playing one pocket. 
And I don't do this on every shot, guys. If I feel fine and the right move calls to me, I'll shoot it. But if I'm in a decision-making spot and I'm being tested, I might ask myself, if I take this shot on that I'm thinking about, whether it's betting on a bank shot for the win or whether it's taking on a hard shot or whether it's trying something a little ambitious, I ask myself this question. If this shot doesn't work and I sell out the game and he runs out because of this, will I be walking away from the table banging my cue like, why did I try that? Or will I be like, well, it was the right shot. I just couldn't come with it right now. Like, how would I feel if this didn't work and it cost me the game? And if the answer is, man, if I lose this game because of this shot, well, then I lose, I lose. But I just, I'm all in. I believe in this shot. I think it's the right play. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I'm good with it. I can deal with it. If I feel that way, then I'll go ahead and give it my best. But if I feel like, man, if this shot doesn't work out and I blow the game because of it, I'd be, I'd feel like this was kind of a punt. And if I, if I do that little check, that's my little check. If, if this doesn't work, would I feel like this is a bit of a punt? And I think we do that playing poker, too. When we play poker, oh, don't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Before you go all in, you're like, man, if, if he flips over aces on me and I lose this hand, can I live with myself? Yeah, of course, of course. That happens all the time in poker. And it happens in rotation. Um, and that's that's a big part of decision-making in, in rotation as well, is that you not all the time, not as much as one pocket, but definitely there are decisions in rotation. And that that get made the same way where you're like, do I go for this bank and, and try to run out or do I play safe? Whatever, you know, it's, it's cool. It's, it's Both games are cool. So that's a process that's in place. It's like I want to be able to make decisions where no matter how bad I feel, no matter how hopeless it looks, no matter what the score is, no matter how good he's playing, no matter how bad I'm playing, that I can be aware of those things. And maybe those things factor into my decisions. But then in the end, I make a decision to where I stand by my decisions. And I feel that that's something that I can control. And that's something that's important to do if you're going to do well. So that's an example of like one of the few processes that you really get to control playing one pocket. Is that your effort? Am I really giving, am I, am I, am I bearing down on these or am I just feeling like it doesn't matter anyway? So I don't, it doesn't matter because I can't win. So I'll just kind of do whatever. And if it works out, if it lines up and if it happens to go, and if it happens, you know, if things start going my way, then I'll try, but I can't do anything about it. So why bother? So like maximum effort, good decisions with my maximum effort and a positive attitude. Like those are my processes. So right away to Josh's point, that's what I'm fighting over. Everything else about results and wins and games and stats, like that can't really be my focus. So agreed. And I just want to explain what those processes were. Yeah. Can I add yeah. a process? Yeah. Okay. This is, this is, I think this could be a good one. Your part of your process with a match like this can be your preparation. Cause it'd be easy to say, I'm drawing dead. Yes. I'm going to go out and just hammer beers and not hit, you know, drink. Right. But I mean, right. I, I could see a player coming into a match and, and, and squandering a, a, a month or so that you've had. By saying, I'm just drawing dead. I don't, I can just, I don't have to prepare for this because what's the LOL, what's the difference? Yes. And the reality is no part of a process mindset is like getting yourself prepared so that like when, like when we go to tournaments, right? You do everything you possibly can with the budget of time. We've talked about this a million times, but just to rehash it or rebring it up. It's like you do everything you can with the budget of time that you have. You spend that time as wisely as you can and as, as judiciously as you can, and then you let it go. And then when you get there, you work your other processes, your mindset processes, and then you're calm in the moment because you're like, I have prepared as hard as I possibly can. And now I, and that's part of my process is to let go of 
of the results of whether or not that's going to scale up to, you know, me being King Kong or not. You know? So this is so good. And so there's a question that people might be asking. There's there's a few things I'm going to hit on before we're done with this topic. But one of them is there's a question that needs to be answered, which is if let's just say it's the race to 100 against better playing tangible, because that's almost a clear cut. I can't win that set. Whereas with Tony, we could we could talk about you know it's it's I'd rather play Tony a race to seven one pocket than Federal race to seven hundred uh, race to one hundred. Yeah. So that's all I'm saying. So my point is is that let's just assume that I'm drawing that. Then the question is why are we preparing? What difference does it make if I can't win the set? Why am I preparing? Now I have an answer. I just want to hear yours. Like okay, it's about you guys still got to prepare. That's part of your things you can control. But but somebody can say, well, what are those processes for if they're not going to ever get you a win? And if there's nothing you, if there's no preparation you can do to win, why, why bother? And that could be the same point. If, if there's no matter how hard I try, I can't win, so why bother? So it's the same thing about effort as it is about preparation. Why put in the preparation if it's not going to yield a win? Because you're going to play pool after you play Tony, right? And that's, you're preparing for, like, pools, pool, I've, Ryan Brecky once told me, no, I'm just kidding. Pool's one long game. One long session, like poker. Poker's one long session. Pool's the same. It's like we 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 work these processes and we do this preparation and all these things because aha, you're not always going to be playing Tony a race to hundred. And um the next time you go out and play somebody that you've put in all that preparation, that work, you have increased your ability to play pool and you have added skills and added um level uh, you have leveled up your game through that process. So it's, you know, it, it might not scale out to an actual win against T-Rex, but it will scale out to higher performances in the future and other, other events and other matches. 100%. So, of course, to get better, that's what you have to do to get better. And and you can sit there and say, well, by playing better players, it'll help me grow and I'll, and I'll improve and it'll help my journey. But it won't help my journey if I just go in and blow, blow off that opportunity because I couldn't win. The other thing that I would say is, it depends on what you mean by winning. So here's a cool way to look at it. Something I've been thinking about because I have been preparing for this match. And is that there's different ways that this could play out. One way that this could play out. And one thing that I've seen with one pocket that makes one pocket really, really tough. There are a lot of feely shots that, that take some white magic. And, and so what I mean by that, there are, there are shots that are just not as routine as a nine ball where you just kind of shoot the shot. Like there's like some weird feely back cut banks where you're kind of like, it's like speed control and kind of thickness hits and kind of weird, awkward, like spinny kind of weird finesse shots and clearance shots and trying to kind of like banking a ball into the pack with the right speed to get the optimal spreads and, and, and kind of get stuff near your hole. Like there's a lot of feely stuff where if you're dialed in and feeling good, you can, like, suppose you have a bank. It's like, it's like a, okay, he sold out, quote, unquote, sold out and left me a bank. But I have to play this bank at a speed I don't really like because I have to leg it in and try to keep him safe if I miss and hold for position if I make it and get a, you know, keep from going too far where I sell out if I miss. Maybe it's not the speed I'd want to shoot that bank with. And then you get down, and if you're feeling bad, that's a spot where everybody's like, ooh, Tony sold out a bank. Now Demi's had a chance to run some balls. But when you're down 3-0 and you've been getting pummeled and you have not run any balls and everything you've done has not worked for an hour, and now all of a sudden you've got that bank, they can, and you've got to play it at an awkward speed, that bank does not have to go. And you can completely miss that bank, and then that was your opportunity. Or you can, instead of making it, you can hang it where he concedes it, and now you get one ball, and now you're dogfighting against Tony again. 
Or you can make it and run some balls and maybe win a game. And it's a, that's a big accomplishment to come with that big. And everybody in the audience is like, oh, it's just big and it and run balls. But like, and there's a lot of moves. My point is there's a lot of moves in one pocket that how you feel really, really, really is going to affect your ability to make those moves. And okay, so my point, zooming back out to what's the point if you can't win is there are two, there's like, not just two, but there's a range of how this could play out. One range in which this can play out is I show up unprepared, completely intimidated, and, and get completely outplayed at every stage of the game, put up very little resistance where Tony just runs me over to where it's not even good pool to watch because he's just, everything he's doing is working. He's barraging me from every spot. And then even the opportunities where he misses and sells out, and now I've actually got a shot to run some balls, and I like miss my opener, or I make my opener and hook myself and then end up selling out, or I, or I, or I run two balls and end up rattling something and sell them out. To where it gets to the point where even when I've got a shot at my pocket, people just feel like it's going to go Tony's way in about 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. Or, or it's like, how could you not run balls there? And everything I'm doing is – so, like, it could get to the spot where everything I do is totally ineffective. Every free bank I get misses or hangs and I get one. Every chance I have to run balls, I get one and hook myself or I get one and rattle a ball and he can run. You know, I'm just – and every move I make, every move I make is just like – I'm getting about 50% out of every move I try to make and everything I do, like even when I've got initiative, it, it fizzles out within two shots and I'm back trying to try to kick balls in into this pocket and, and watching him run balls three shots later. And I could just lose seven zero where I barely score a ball and everything I do is totally ineffective. And that could happen on the top side of that range. I could get to where I'm playing one pocket and, and even then He's probably going to outstrike me and outmove me and outrun me and outshoot me and outtrap me and outkick me. And so, so then the results might still be he wins the set. But, but there's a world in which I show up and deliver the better half of my range, that I'm, I'm making good decisions, that I'm, I'm, able to, I'm able to strike them the way I'd strike them if I was feeling good against somebody. So I, I'd be able to execute the way, you know, where some of those shots are, I'm, I'm getting effectiveness out of my shots and I'm making my presence belt and I'm making my innings count and I'm, and I'm, and I'm playing, playing a real game of one pocket at them to, to, to the best of my abilities. So even though you could sit there and say, well, the results don't change, you lose, you lose. What's the difference? It's like, well, it depends. Is there a difference between showing up and getting 7-0 where I feel like I never even connected with the table versus showing up and playing a real one-pocket battle where I execute to the best of my abilities, play back at the guy, make him earn it, and, and battle out and actually win some games and lose 7-3? Is, is there a difference? It's like, well, there's a difference to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that sounds better to me. You know what yeah. I mean? And so, so you can't just look at it like, well, it's a loss. It's a loss. It's like, no, it could be a devastating, I didn't even show up kind of loss, or it could be, I gave my best, feel good about how good I played, and, and I, I'm up against it, and I get that, but like, hey, that's what's going to happen, but I, I feel good about the, you know, the game I delivered. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that's kind of what you got to be striving for, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I, and I feel like, you know, if you if you put in the effort to prepare and you can let it go and just accept it when you're there, then usually the outcomes are favorable overall, comparatively speaking, to not putting in the input and, and preparing. And uh no matter what happens, you can you can kind of live with it, you know, and be and be excited about it. 
and look for the future in a positive way. And it helps to be able to say you did your best. Like I will tell right. you, like I've been watching a lot of one pocket the last few days, three, four, five days, kind of getting geared up for this. And I've been gone and I've been practicing uh, in different ways. And just thinking about playing Tony has made me like completely dog stroking in practice, like like stuff that in practice, if I was just hitting these balls, they'd go away. But just thinking about like how I'm going to be feeling and what it's going to be yeah, like, visualization. it's like, oh my God, it's horrifying. Yeah. So, but it's great for your game. Yeah. But great for your training. I also kind of wanted to mention one thing, which is that, you know, it kind of overlaps with the narratives that we have. And there are some players that I think, like, if you were to ask, um, I wanted to talk to Jesse before I did this because I was curious what he would say about this. Because I feel like with Jesse, he really believes that, like, I just, I've never heard him say he's not live the way. Like, I just feel like he always kind of believes that if he plays his game, that he can, like, yeah, he knows that in a long session against these guys that they have an edge, maybe they play full time and maybe they strike the balls better. But he's just like, well, I can play great pool and give me a chance and I can beat anybody at any time. I think he kind of feels that way. And one thing that he and I have talked about, because I've got a, like a derby or attorney still never with him, and he's he's kind of told me, and there's some value in this, where he always focuses. I'll just tell you what I think he'd say. And one thing I've learned from him is that he really always focuses on his opponent's leaks. So instead of thinking that like Tony plays perfect one pocket or, or Federer plays perfect 10 ball, like if he was playing Federer or race to 100, he'd be like, he's watched better play. And he's like, yeah, he's a great player, one of the best in the world. That's great. But like, I've seen, I've seen imperfection in his game. Now, what Jesse is not saying is I'm better than Federer or I'm any, or I'm going to beat him. But what he does is he really, really, really focuses on the imperfections in their game. And that's where he keeps his attention. Because the best I can kind of describe it as an analogy is suppose you're playing a game where you had to shoot a ball into a half pocket at distance. You're shooting a long shot and it barely, like you have to like aim it. Like, can it even go if I shoot it with my cue? It's like, man, if I shoot it with my cue into the very edge of the facing, maybe I can make it. That's a hard shot to shoot from distance with a cut. But if that's what you have to do, maybe you're playing eight ball. That's the eight ball. That's your only shot. And, and you got to go. Once that's your shot, it doesn't do any good to think about how big the blocker ball is or how tight the pocket is. At some point, you have to just look at where it goes and look at the contact point and give all your attention to the shot you want to have happen, which is hit that spot, hit that point. doesn't matter how tight that is or how long it is or how little margin there is. That's fine. But now that's the spot I've got to hit. i got to go all in and try to hit it. And that's, I think, when Jesse's talking about playing these like top Euro bats and all this stuff in matches – he always like focuses on the weaknesses of their game. And it's like, they're unlikely to beat these sevens. They're un I mean, I'm sorry. That's a, they're unlikely to win the league and run seven racks or win nine racks. Mm -hmm. Like they are going to, at some point, make mistakes. They're going to come up dry. They're going to play a safety and leave me a, a, a better kick than I should have had. They're going to give me a, an opening shot. Uh, they're going to give me a long bank where they should have had me hooked. Like they're going to leak out something. Mm -hmm. And it may not be easy and it may not be much, but they're going to give me something that they shouldn't give me. And I'm going to, that's what I'm focusing on is I'm going to wait for them to give me anything and I'm going to pounce on it. So this isn't necessarily how I feel and how I view it, but that's, I wanted to share Jesse's point of view, which is they're not perfect. He really, really, really zooms in on the imperfections of their game and makes it a point to go full throttle, maximum punishment for all those little imperfections in their game as best he can. And that that's his road to victory is Find the, find the slight imperfections they have and do everything you can to power them. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I've talked to Jesse about that a little bit too. Um, yeah, I don't, I think sometimes I, I view it that way in some ways, or I might view it just a slightly bit different, which is like, if I'm in a tournament and I draw somebody that's a huge favorite, I feel like, well, I'm not at an advantage here, obviously, but I do have some advantages. And one of my advantages is that they're basically going to have a difficult time. They're going to underestimate me probably. Right. And, and, and so, and that happens with, with, with everybody in tournaments and I'm sneaky good or whatever people tell themselves, but it's like, there is some sort of mindset that, that is somewhat effective there to say, you know what, I'm playing XYZ top, top flight player. And I and we're in the second round of the tournament, and I know that they're going to be feeling, you know, either they're they're going to they might either be this like not engaged as much or something. And so I just I'm aware of how that those dynamics work. So sometimes, like a lot of times, I'll go in just feeling not optimistic necessarily, but I'll just be like, well, I'm probably going to get some opportunities, kind of like Jesse's saying, and it, like not I don't look at their weaknesses necessarily, but I just look at it and think. Well, everybody has things that they do in leaks and, and, and levels of interest and everything. And I just have to try to pounce on any sort of opportunity I get and, and create pressure. And if I can create pressure um, and keep pressure on, then then weird things happen. That's it. So, yeah, I was playing a guy that was like a 750 at Derby. We were playing nine ball and I felt like I was up against it before I drew him. And I just kept doing what I could do to keep the games close. And, and we got to the hill and he, 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 he full, he fumbled. And, and then I had the eight open balls and I ran out and beat him. And, uh, but, but that was like, you know, but I, I had to fight belief the whole time that a, he can fumble because everybody's human, even though he's a Euro guy, whatever, and good player, better player. And then the other thing is, is that I can keep my stuff together and, and and execute or whatever. So that's that's kind of the way I look at it. Is like I believe that if I can keep it close, that that game, the pool is a pressure game, and everybody everybody feels pressure. So yeah, I, and, I yeah. So this is cool. Uh, I was thinking about something that I think everybody can relate to, which and we've talked about this for years about the script. There are certain scripts that people can follow where. We've all seen this, guys, where everybody, where somebody's like, say they're a good player at a tournament and they're playing weaker players, but maybe the guy's like a 650 Fargo and he's a heck of a player and he's playing weaker players the whole time and he's up there and he's got some pap in his staff and he's got some stank at everything he does because he's in the role. He's in the mindset of, I'm the better player. This is the part where I get to play good. I'll play my opponent, show him what good pool can look like, you know, put on a little exhibition and they get up and they play really well. And this could even be a 700 player. doesn't matter. But then all of a sudden they play somebody that's got them completely up against. It. So maybe this guy who's like a 650 or a 700 and they're playing so good and they're, they got pep in their step and they're solving racks and hitting balls perfect and breaking open clusters just right. And it's like, man, this guy plays so good. And then they start playing somebody that's got them completely outgunned, like say fatter. And all of a sudden that same player, like they know that they can't win and they start kind of getting into like this spot where they're like, they take on the role of the losing player where now it's my turn to kind of get up and everything I do is ineffective. And I can't seem to come with it. And this is the part where you run me over and, and, and they kind of just like, it's like, well, how did that player that has so much pep in their staff and was hitting these shots so crispy and juicy. And all of a sudden it's, it's not like their game got worse, but now they're in this role where they're in the loser's role 
And they, it's almost like they knew that the, it's like a movie producer, we call it a script, because it's almost like a, a, the director handed up a script and said, now's the part where nothing you do works and then you're just going to get bored. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so my thoughts on that are, first of all, what doesn't work is to sit there and say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take that role. I'm just going to play my game no matter what. It's like, no, no, no. Like, you can't, if it was that easy, everybody would do it. There is something about being in the loser role where when you know you're up against it, that it's it's very, very, very difficult to not fall into that role. And so I'm telling people, if I, I teach mental game, of course, and I think about this a lot. And it's like, the answer is that there's nothing you can do to where you'll never succumb to that. Everybody succumbs to that sometimes. I've seen it. And even people that, you know, you know, whatever. It's like, I've just seen everybody, everybody dogs and sometimes everybody breaks down sometimes and everybody goes into that mode where they, they don't feel that they can win. And then it radiates out where everything they do is somewhat ineffective. I've seen it. It comes out for different reasons and different narratives and different stories, but to sit there and think, well, I'm just, I can't allow myself to do that. That's not useful because that's not, that's not how that works. But I do think that understanding that that is a tough challenge and that's a mental challenge and that that's going to be difficult. And that the meaning, kind of like I was saying, the meaning of this match for me is trying to manage my way through that and live in that spot less and, and try to find that spot where, where you're delivering your game and seizing every opportunity and doing the best you can. And, and you're not playing along with this. I'm just going to, you know, go through the bullshits and be ineffective and lose because that's what I'm supposed to do. But rather, you understand that that can happen and you might feel that way at times and you might even succumb to that at times. But that the game is trying to go the other road where you show up and do your best. And then it's going to flicker back and forth. Like I might end up in that role against Tony and it could happen and it doesn't feel good. It never feels good when that happens, but like that's no matter how hard I prepare physically and mentally, mm-hmm. that's always in play because he's going to put on pressure on me that, that is difficult to overcome. But my goal is not necessarily to beat him or to play great. My goal is to wrestle with that pressure as best I can. And, and when that happens, accept that that's what's happening, take a deep breath and go back to my processes. And that the win for me is, so let's see let's see what percentage of the time I can spend where I'm not in a doomsday script and I'm instead in a having fun battling script. Yeah. And, and, and I don't expect, I'm not going to sit there and tell myself, well, I'm not going to do that 100% of the time I'm going to be battling. It's like, no, no, no. I understand how tough it can be. So what I'm going to do is prepare as hard as I can, fight as hard as I can, and then whatever percentage of the time I end up playing the doomsday script, that was the best I could have done because I went in it. But my goal is to minimize that amount of pie chart that I'm in the doomsday script. And like, and then it's going to be some of the time, but whatever percentage of the time I end up acting doomsday, whether it's 1% or 99% or 100%, that will have been the best I could do. And yeah. I'm, I'm fighting to spend as much time in the positive state as I can. That's Brilliant. my purpose. Brilliant. It's awesome. Yeah, I think that's cool. I think it's cool that, that that's, for me, that's meaningful. Because then when it comes down to, well, why bother preparing and why bother trying if you can't win? It's like, no, no, no. I'm not measuring my results off a win or a loss. I'm measuring them off of how well I do managing my mindset and my performance, given the adversity I'm up against. And I'll never know what good or average was because I can only play them once. But I'm going to prepare and give it my all because there's to me, there's meaning in the game. That's what the meaning of the game comes from is is meeting that adversity. And then even if I can't overcome the race to seven adversity, I will have plenty of opportunities to overcome the individual challenges that come up during the sets. Yeah. And that each one is its own match. Each shot is its own match. And then the last thought I had on this is short, is that 
because I was thinking about Jesse's narrative and how he really does believe he can play anybody in the world and win. And it occurred to me, I don't feel that way. And that it could be that there's different mindsets that lead to victory. But I would say that most top world champions believe that they have what it takes to beat anybody at any time. I, I believe that like, if you were to ask Shane or Filler or Federer or Sanchez Ruiz, I think that when you talk to these guys, while they have respect for their opponents and they have humility in the sense that they know that they're not always going to win, not always going to play good, but they also all have belief that if they execute their game plan, that they can, they can overcome almost anything at times. And it occurred to me that I can't say that. If I go to the U.S. Open and play Federer in the finals, I can't sit there and be like, you know, I could just overcome anything. My, my point is, Josh, I wanted to ask this question. We have a podcast where we're talking to dozens and dozens of people that are not better horse. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the point is, our audience is not better. And my question was, we get so hung up on how does a champion think? How does a champion think? How does a champion think? And then we just assume that if that's how the champions think, that that's how we should think. But is that true? Is it possible that these champions are also people that are putting in way more budget of time and energy and preparation to where they're playing at totally different levels and have totally different budgets to where, yeah, if you get yourself to the point where you can run 200 balls in straight pool, then it makes sense to feel like I'm always live against my opponents in a game of straight pool. But if you're a 10 ball runner and you're playing in a straight pool match against better, you're not, that's just not a genuine thought that you could get behind. So my, my question is, is it possible that, that, different level players might that the narratives that serve these champion players might not serve us. What do you think? Or is it always fast? No, that's how a champion thinks. I need to, I need to convince myself of the same things that they believe about their game. Mm, okay. So you're asking me, so I'll just tell you what I yeah, think. Yeah. I'm curious what you think. I think you earn those thoughts through your work. That's what I think. I think that those thoughts and that mindset and those things are earned through the amount of effort. That's so smart. That's very well said, Josh. Very well said. Keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no. I'm just I mean, adding I, in the back. Oh, thanks. Tell me more, Demi. Because then, what was that? Can you repeat what that? Was that? I didn't hear you. Sit down. Um, no, no, that's it. That's it. I just, I, I do think that. And I and I always talk about, oh, shucks, I, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm afraid. I'm all these things. But the more work I put in and the more... Um, input that I have, the, the less I feel that way, and the more you know, confidence or quiet confidence or belief that I that I feel um, through the preparation and through all this work that we're talking about. So I, I think they're related, and that, that's where I think it comes from, and that's how I think it gets developed. And there are people that just you know, I'm going to look in the mirror and and uh, you know, tell myself positive things and, and all that stuff. But you you know that if it's if you don't okay. This is such a rabbit hole. I, we, we're we're going to wrap up, but like, like I believe that 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 is it. And so in business, it's the same thing. Like when I'm selling hardwood flooring or, or dealing with it, I, people are like, "I've never talked to anyone as confident as you." And I'm like, "Yeah, well, you haven't talked to me about pool. You, you're talking to me about something that I've that I'm an 800 pound gorilla in, you know." And so I have a ton of confidence and belief, and 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 it's based on all of the things that, 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 that make me who I am, you know, and with pool, I think that people do that and put that energy and have those gifts or skills or whatever development in pool. And they feel that same way. So I think it is related to, to, uh, 
what you put into it and how, how effective you've been. You know, what's a great analogy for this is uh, people, I, I remember being faced with a decision when I was growing at pool where am, should I shoot the shot that I think gives me the best chance to win? Or should I shoot what I consider to be the right shot as what like the pros would shoot? Like I'm in a spot where I can either bank this nine or I can chip it and leave the guy end rail to end rail. And I feel like Federer would bank this nine. But I feel like if I try to bank this nine, I, I think my win rate goes higher. I, like, I feel like I'm going to miss this bank a lot where if I play safe, I'm going to win the game more often if I don't. What should I do? Should I play what I think is – should I try to play like I think the pros should play and will myself into that? Or should I do what I think is going to give me the best chance to win right now, even if I don't think that's what the top players should do? And I've always been of the belief you should play what you think is going to give you the best chance to win. And then learning your abilities and learning to optimize your abilities and put together the best package of delivery of your game you can and find a way to win. I feel like that's where the magic of pool is. Max out your performance for your abilities and find a way to get the W with the skills you have. And then after the match, set the shot up and work on shooting it like you think Filler would shoot it. Yes. And then over time, as you develop your skills, you don't have to try to will yourself into being some offensive juggernaut. As you develop your skills, there'll be times when you're at the table saying, what's the best path to victory? And you'll, you'll blink and you'll be like, actually, I think shooting this ball is going to work. Yeah. And then you start going more often. But you don't go more often because you're shooting stupid shots that you can't do thinking it's going to pay off something. Mm -hmm. You always maximize your winning chances. And then little by little by little, you're just at the table, feel that your strategies change. I think that's what you're saying about mindset is at the beginning, you look at this and you're like, I don't really feel like I have a lot of confidence or a road to victory. I can't really see this working out. Uh, but as you play these matches and you develop your skills and then you start scalping people and you have wins and you start having more and more, all of a sudden you beat a guy like that once, then you beat a guy like that five times. And all of a sudden you beat a guy like that dozens of times to where all of a sudden you just feel differently in those situations and, and you have a different level of, of, of belief and confidence and you can see a path to victory because you've done it enough times mm -hmm. and you can't fake your way into that by telling yourself, you know, I know that, I know that filler would believe that he could do it. So therefore, if I just convince myself the same things. So I think in the end, my main point is this, I hear how Jesse talks and I try to learn from him. Um, but at the same time, I think that there is room. Number one, I think there's room for different narratives. I think there are different narratives that can be effective and not everybody has to believe. There's not one way of believing things, but there's a, you know, to, you know, somebody that believes, I think I can always win versus somebody that's like, like more like me where I'm like, I don't ever know if I can win, but I know that if I try my hardest and play real hard, sometimes good things happen and I'm trying to deliver the best part of my game. And that's my goal that it's worked out for me. I have a slightly different narrative, but I've also had some success in my life. So that's the first part is there might be different narratives. And number two, I think we get so hung up on thinking about how champions think, how champions think, how champions think. But then we've got a bunch of people that have jobs and families and a limited budget and play amateur level pool and try to sit there and say, I need to try to find a way to duplicate this champion mindset. I don't always think that's the most effective. I think that you can sit there and say, you know, I think that there's other mindsets you can have that are matched the experience and skills that you have. That, And so as an example for me, I can't sit there and say, how would Alex Pagulian feel playing toward you? And then try to think like Alex. That makes no sense to me because I don't play like Alex. Mm -hmm. But what I can do is I can look at players that play close to my speed, but strong, 
So like, for example, Bo Runnigan is, you know, a very good one pocket player, very experienced. Jesse is good. You know, Anthony McGlino. These are guys that if I play these guys, they're all like 750 to 770. They're, they're a little stronger and they're, and they're a little tougher than me. And they've in the past, they've done some things I haven't done. And I, but, but they're close enough to me that I can actually see how I can maybe do what they do. So I don't know if I can do what Alex does, but I can picture like how would Bo handle this match with Tony? And in what ways might he outperform me if I showed up and didn't play as well? And then I can't necessarily strive to play like Alex or get results like Alex, but I can strive to be a little bit more like a Bo or an Anthony Piccolino or just somebody a little tougher. So I'm not saying that's useful. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm kind of missing my main point. My, my main point is... I don't have to try to duplicate an Alex mindset. I can think about how people that are close to my speed, but a little bit out of my comfort zone as far as, you know, they're a little tough. And then I can think about their mindset and their mindset seems more approachable to me. And like, like it would be representing the top of my range. And so it gives me something to kind of strive for that I can actually picture myself achieving that's not so far out of range. So that's all. I was just thinking about that. The main point though is, I don't know that we all have to think like if we read some autobiography by Lance Armstrong, I don't think we all have to think like the number one of the world things. I don't think that that's achievable or useful for a lot of people. I don't know. It's just an idea I had. Yeah. 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 Well, in corporate, it works because corporate's an easy game. Corporate's <laughs> easy. So you can just... Uh, Nobody's trying to... You don't have world-class people that have dedicated their life to beating you. Exactly. Exactly. So you do see that a lot in corporate is like people reading... Books. I'm not dogging. Well, I'm saying it's very effective, right? Leadership books and Lance Armstrong books or whatever. It's just, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just in, in pool. It's a. I feel like it's a little bit different. And like you said, you have to earn some of those things. And yeah, in business, there might be like here are successful ways of thinking, here are in, uh, ineffective ways of thinking. Whereas in pool, some things that are, you know, it's like yes, it's really useful to believe that you could beat Federer or race to a hundred, but that's not a, an approachable belief that. Pool's a skill game, and the mental game is a skill game. And like Josh says, you have to earn that stuff through experience and developing your skills and time. And, and some of these beliefs, you can't just strap them on. Kind of the same way. That's why I like that analogy of saying, you can't just sit there and say, well, Filler would shoot this, so I'm going to shoot it. it yeah. That's not useful. In sales, you can stand in the mirror and say, I am this, I am that, I am this, I am that. And you can neuro-linguistically program your brain. And there is some of that in sports, for sure. You can neuro-linguistically program your brain in sports. I'm not saying you can't. But it's, it's, it's uh, you know, this is a different topic. No, but no, it's, it's just, it's right on. It's an interesting idea, which is there are a lot of things that champions do in terms of the way they think that are more effective than others. And so if those things are approachable and useful right away. Like I teach mental game and I have some beliefs and thoughts about how people can approach matches and competition that are beneficial. But then, but then there are some things that, you know, uh, if, if a 50, if there's an 18 year old that's playing 10 hours a day, full time on the international tour, telling himself, I know someday I'm going to be number one in the world because of what I go through today. Well, that's a powerful belief that somebody listening to this is not going to be able to use and duplicate because they're not playing 10 hours a day full-time. They don't believe they're going to be number one in the world someday. Yeah. So even if that's what a champion thinks, they can't really use that belief in their day-to-day play. And that's what I think is interesting. There's a lot of things you can learn from champions and how they think, but not everything that they believe and think is going to be useful to you at the amateur level. That was my And at the amateur level, if you're not putting in the input to support that idea, then you're going to have a miserable path of, of disappointment. So there's some, there's some things that you can say, these are useful that I can learn and apply. 
And then there's some things where I'm like, well, that doesn't, that's not accessible to me. I, I haven't earned that or I'm not going to be able to. Yep. Yeah, Josh. Yeah. Boom, man. Boom. Cool. All right. Well, this wraps up another episode. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll go. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I really appreciate the feedback, the comments, um, and, uh, and all the support. So thanks. Thanks, everyone.